0: Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Carl Henrik swanberg and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to BP's 2011 annual, Annual General Meeting. Before we start our discussions, I now formally need to propose Resolutions 1 to 23 set out in the notice of the meeting. Voting of each of these resolutions will take place by poll, The poll will take place at the end of the meeting when we will explain how you will and how you may participate. So, when I stood here last year in front of you, I predicted that sharing BP would be an inspiring challenge. I wasn't wrong. In the past 12 months, BP has been through a crisis almost unprecedented in history in corporate history today the board and I we are here to answer your questions on the events last year where the company is now and where we are heading we have not yet had the first anniversary of the tragic accident that happened on Deepwater Horizon on the Deepwater Horizon rig in April last year so before I go any further, I would want us all to remember those 11 men who died, those that were injured, their families and their friends. BP's priority have always been and always will be that people who work for us and that work with us shall return home safely at the end of every day. It should go, out, go without saying that everyone at BP is shocked and saddened that this accident happened. We will, I'm sure, discuss many things today, but I want to be clear from the start that safe and reliable operations lie at the heart of all that we do. We will do all we can to prevent such an accident from happening again I'm committed to this and so is BP although we try to in the annual report to give you a fair description of all that happened in 2010 I still want to address the most important matters the tragic accident and the related oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico affected many peoples and communities. Our response was unprecedented and I think has been recognized as such. As one of the responsible parties under US law we took action immediately and we made clear that we would pay all legitimate claims resulting from this bill. The discussion that I had with the President of the United States including our agreement of setting up a $20 trust fund became a crucial step in responding to the accident, and it marked a turning point. BP has not, and it will not, shy away from its responsibilities. But it is important to remember that both our own investigation and the Presidential Commission found that the accident had a number of causes and involved a number of parties. Some may think that this accident related to just one company. They are wrong. As the Presidential Commission found, there are lessons for all the industry. The board is committed, therefore, to ensure that all of the parties involved bear their share of burden. We have learned many lessons from this strategy, from this tragedy, it is our responsibility and it is our duty to share these lessons with a wider industry in order to help make deep sea drilling safer. In the business of working with hydrocarbons, there will always be risks. Risks from the, from the products themselves, risk in the way that they are produced and processed, and risks in working in the countries where they are found. You, our shareholders, you must be comfortable that we are taking the right risks on your behalf to safeguard your investments. So too must the people in the countries and then the communities in which we work. They must have the confidence that we can meet their expectations of safe and reliable operations. Everything we have done since the Deepwater Horizon has had one aim, to win back trust of shareholders and communities across the world. BP remains a great company with a great history and I believe a great future. We have great people We all take our responsibilities extremely seriously. We will work hard to restore our reputation for doing just that. So let me now talk about the dividend, as I know that this is an issue on the minds of all of you here today. I speak for all my colleagues in the board when I say that suspending the dividend, and indeed not even paying the dividend that was in the pipeline was one of the hardest decisions we have taken. But it was absolutely imperative to make the company financially safe and secure. The top kill, as we learned it, had failed. And access to liquidity was becoming very difficult and expensive. We knew we needed to set aside funds to meet the claims in the Gulf of Mexico. And the trust fund was a critical way of giving confidence to the American people that we would not cut and run. As I've said, trust in communities, not just in the United States, but around the world, is a key part of our license to operate. So let me take the opportunity also to clarify that despite many rumors, on the contrary, the decision to cut the dividend was one taken by the board. It was not a topic in my discussions with President Obama. I'm delighted that we now have been able to restore the dividend, albeit at a lower level. We need to reflect The realities of the company's financial position and we will keep this under review as our strategy bears fruit I'm also pleased that a number of our shareholders and hopefully in this room as well that you have been that you're taking up the script alternative which was approved here at the AGM last year Communicating with our shareholders and stakeholders throughout this crisis was one of our biggest challenges. We did all we could to keep you informed. We uh, used our website as the main means of that communication. We're updating it, updated it daily, sometimes hourly. And we used it to communicate with you around the decision of the, on the dividend. Yet I know that many of you here did not feel that you got enough information and I can only apologize for that. I hope that the details we have given in the annual report and the sustainability report go some way to address this. Over the last year, we have had contact with many of our shareholders, large and small. And I would like to thank you all for the interest that you have shown, whether it's been supportive or it has been critical. And I look forward to continue this dialogue, this constructive dialogue which we have with shareholders on both sides of the Atlantic. The steps that we have taken and the decisions we have made has enabled us to move forward. Clearly, we have still many things to address. We have reset the company, and we are now doing things differently. Let me just say shortly what I believe that means. We are going through fundamental change. We have a new organization, an organization which is functionally based rather than the asset-based one we've had for many years. It's an organization with, which has strengthened safety and operations functions. This new organization will also lead to and drive change in the way we set targets, remuneration, values, and what it means to actually work for BP. Bob will come back and talk more about that, Bob, Mars, CEO. This is not simply a reshuffling of the deck of cards. It is the change which any company would go through in, in these circumstances. So let me now talk a little more about the board because after this meeting the board will be a substantially changed team. During the year as you're well aware Tony Hayward and Andy Ingalls stepped down and we would like to thank them for their efforts over many, many years of service in BP and wish them both well for the future. At the end of this meeting, Dr. Deanne Julius and Douglas Flint will leave the board. And uh, you, Deanne, you have um, you've been in the board since 2001 and you have latterly been the chair of the uh, remuneration committee. You have led the committee through many difficult decisions over the years. Douglas, uh, you have recently been appointed the chairman of HSBC and and you obviously need to focus your attention on your duties there. You have chaired the audit committee for the last year and, and your contribution was extremely significant during the height of the crisis last year. So again, I would like to thank you both for your contributions and wish you well. Uh, then I would like to welcome Brenda Nelson, Skip Bauman and Putumaneleko to their first AGM. All come with strong and relevant experience to the work at the board. Brendan, Brenda was the deputy chairman of uh, KPMG and he will also take over the, the role as the head of the uh, audit committee. Potoma is one of Africa's most respected business leaders, and uh, Potuma has worked his, throughout his career in emerging markets, and you have experience also from years in the extraction industry, and you will also join the audit committee. Skip, Skip Bauman brings valuable experience of process safety as the former head of the US nuclear navy. You also served on the Baker panel and you are for all the obvious reasons joining the safety ethics and environmental assurance committee. Finally, Tony Bergman, well known to you is taking over the chair of the remuneration committee. The nominations committee will in the future consist of Bill Castell, Ian Davis, Cynthia Carroll, Tony Bergmans, and it will be me in the chair. All these changes in the board, they reflect the need for BP to continue to evolve, to seek fresh perspectives and skills from people with a broad range of backgrounds and discipline. Diversity remains an important consideration. I do believe that the board responded strongly during the crisis. It was a very intense period, as you understand. We met many times, we spoke daily, and I'm I'm so proud that we stayed united and we stayed resilient. All directors were committed to ensuring that the company responded effectively and correctly. And we did not shy away from taking tough decisions. So let me focus specifically on the steps that are being taken by the board. As I said earlier, we are resetting BP. The board's task is to establish the framework within which this can happen and to ensure that that all lessons are learned. It has been critical for the board to give Enough attention to the Gulf of Mexico, but yet have space to discuss strategy and risk. The board therefore created a structure to achieve that. The new Gulf of Mexico Committee provided proved to be extremely important. It has been shared by Ian Davis, and the committee oversees the work of the Gulf. Gulf Coast Restoration Organization, and in particular, the legal claims and the investigations that we are facing. It has provided oversight and assistance to the executive team and gives more space to the board to also work on broader challenges of strategy and risk. Risk, as I've said, is part of our business. BP and our peers in the industry have well-developed ways of understanding and managing risk, which is demanded by the nature of the industry. But we obviously can do better. We can always do better. Risk, therefore, will continue to be a key area of focus for the board. But in terms of the balance between risk, both in terms of the balance between risk and reward and the evaluation of the management of risk, And this includes the work with subcontractors and the work in joint ventures. We must ensure that the board works in a way which allows it to govern a business of the size and scope of BP for years to come. So we are looking at that. We are looking in the way that we as a board work and the task we set ourselves as a new team, with new ideas, we want to build on the strengths that we have. And in my role, a board has two roles. One is to work on the strategy and encourage the executive team in its implementation. Equally, the board has to oversee and challenge its performance of the company and of the risks that it has identified. How this work is balanced between the board and the committees need to be kept under continuous review. But the Deepwater Horizon accident have in fact provided us with a unique opportunity to review the way that we work. But in my, and in my experience, it is often hard for a board to carry out a fundamental review of how it operates. It is challenging sometimes for a board to see itself dispassionately. We are a new team, and I'm encouraged by the vigor and freshness that is demonstrated already around the board table. And we will apply this in determining the way that we work in the future. And I will look forward, I look forward to reporting more to you on these results. So, what of the future? Well, BP has a critical role to play in meeting the world's growing need for energy. Our own outlook, the BP 2030 outlook, which I commend to you, it estimates that the need of energy will grow by some 40% in the next 20 years. This is equivalent to adding two times United States consumption of energy to the world's present consumption. This growing need is primarily driven by the rapid development of the emerging markets and billions of people in the next 30, 40 years will lift their living standards closer to ours. Our 2030 outlook That is a dispassionate view of the energy world. Uh, It is based on supply and demand trends and policy, and the policy decisions that we so far can anticipate. But even in scenarios with more radical policy decisions than those that are currently envisaged, the world will remain largely dependent on fossil fuel, for for years to come. Alternative sources of energy have a very important role to play, and we are therefore investing in a number of these sources. Alternatives are in fact expected to be the fastest growing energy sector. However, it starts from a low level, and the overall impact will be modest for still some time. Energy efficiency is also of huge importance, and it is arguably the fastest way for this world to respond to its needs. But the bottom line remains that the world needs all sources of energy, and if we cannot produce enough of oil and gas, the only viable alternative for yet some time could be coal. In all of this, BP has a vital role to play. We have to create a long-term sustainable company to supply a sustainable world. And to do this, as I've explained, we must restore our reputation. We must refocus our strategy. And we must deliver long-term value for you, our shareholders. And we won't, of course, achieve this entirely alone. BP has always been good in partnerships and we are building on that skill in our new associations in Iraq, in China, in India and in Russia. In order to meet the ever-growing global demand for energy, Russia is an important place for BP to be. We have worked there for 15 years, over 15 years, We have relationships with Rosneft throughout that period and with our partner TNK BP since 2003. With life has not always been easy. TNK BP has been a successful venture with superior returns. It is of the interest of BP's long-term growth in value that we build on the major and unique position that we have in Russia. Access to the Arctic is a substantial price, and we're therefore pleased that we have extended the deadline for concluding our business with Rosneft. In all of the meetings that we have had with shareholders around the world, we have got two questions. First of all, do we get it? Do we understand what needs to be done to prevent another accident like the Deepwater Horizon or other events that can threaten the very existence of the company. And equally, can we grow the business to deliver long-term value for our shareholders? I hope that all that you will hear today will reassure you that we have heard these concerns and that our strategy and our actions is proof of that. We are a different company than the one a year ago. We are emerging from the challenges of 2010 as a wiser and stronger company focused on realizing value through safe and sustainable operations. Our commitment and my commitment is to use all our efforts and skill to meet your expectations, our shareholders, and those of the communities in which we work and live. So I would like to um, thank you for being here today, and I would like to thank you for your support. And I do look forward to all your questions in a little while here. So let us now move to the formal business of the meeting. Once again, we are a little outside London, and, and we, um, this remains the venue best suited for our needs, given also the numbers that are here today. I'm keen to uh, ensure you to ensure that all of you have the opportunity to have your say on the items on today's agenda. We have a very broad shareholder base. With the majority of our shares being held outside United Kingdom and we will continue therefore to have our voting by way of poll that should however not at all I hope constrain the debate and the discussion in the meeting here today so with your support and assistance I hope that we can move through the resolutions in a timely manner. The notice of the meeting contains the text of each of the resolutions. There are supporting notes designed to give further clarification and background. Information on each of the directors who are offering themselves for re-election can also be for election and for re-election can also be found there and a full description on how the meeting is to be conducted you'll find on page 14 in the notice of the meeting, as does the poll procedure. As we go through the meeting, you will see behind me slides with the number and title of each of the resolutions that we are discussing. Resolution 17, 19, and 20 are proposed as special resolutions. A special resolution needs to be passed by a three-quarters majority of those voting in the poll. All other resolutions are ordinary resolutions and require a 50% or simple majority. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's now discuss resolution number one, the annual report and accounts. This describes what has happened in 2010. I have already made some comments, and I would now like to turn to Bob and ask you to give your own thoughts. We will then come back to your questions. Thanks a lot.
1: Well good morning everyone and may I also welcome you all here today in my new capacity as BP CEO let me express my gratitude to Carl Henrik and the members of the board for their wisdom and support over the past year. The board have been extremely active and engaged. They have provided advice and challenge and that has been valued by the management team. And can I also thank you as shareholders for continuing to support BP over the past year. In my remarks today, I want to build on what the chairman has said by doing three things. First, to explain how we responded to the accident last year. Second, to give you the details of the measures we're now taking to create a safer and stronger BP. And third, to set out our program to build long-term value for you, our shareholders. First, responding to the accident. As Carl Henrik has said, this has been an extraordinarily challenging year for our company. We were devastated by the loss of life last April and we regret the incident deeply. I grew up on the Gulf Coast of the United States and so it was and is very personal for me. I was saddened by the impacts that the event had on the beaches and the bayous and the communities that I know very well. But at the same time, I was heartened by the response of BP's people. I worked down on the Gulf for many, many months this summer, and I saw people turn up from all over the world living out of suitcases, working very long hours under huge pressure. They worked in partnership with the U.S. Coast Guard, with the federal government, the Gulf states, and a host of federal and state agencies, and local citizens volunteered to help, and many BP retirees came from many parts of the U.S. to take part in the response. We had some very tough days, but I look at what our people were doing and I knew that BP could recover. Our people have the commitment and they have the capability. In the Gulf of Mexico, for example, with the eyes of the world upon them, our engineers worked around the clock to create and deploy new technologies 5,000 feet below the seabed, the level. And on the shoreline, our people work with federal and state agencies and local citizens to weave together a complex operation from several diverse elements, including BP people, local volunteers, ships, aircraft, boom, and new technologies. And at its peak, the response involved over 48,000 people, over 6,500 vessels, and 2,500 miles of boom. Active cleaning was required and undertaken along some 400 miles of the Gulf Coast islands, sandbars, and beaches, or around 10% of the shoreline. All of the affected public amenity beaches were prioritized for cleanup, and they were open for the traditional spring break this year when the hotel occupancy rates were reported to be around historic averages. And over 99% of the Gulf is now open for fishing and government testing has consistently found Gulf seafood safe to eat. And as the chairman has said, we continue to meet our obligations. We paid now over five billion dollars in claims to individuals, businesses, and government entities for environmental remediation. And we've made hundred and thirty eight million dollars of grants to the Gulf Coast states last year. And we provided 500 million dollars for the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative which is funding independent research to investigate the impacts on the ecosystem. Several investigations have been conducted, some of which have already been published. These include our own BP investigation, in which external experts participated, the report of the President's National Commission, and a specific report for the U.S. government on the blowout preventer. Both the Presidential Commission and our own internal investigation concluded the accident was the result of multiple causes involving multiple parties. Our own investigation made 26 recommendations covering issues including blowout preventers, pressure tests, and cement testing. And the Presidential Commission made wide-ranging recommendations for government and industry on areas ranging from risk management to planning for oil spill responses. And we're now systematically implementing those lessons we've learned from the accident all through our company. As well as meeting our commitments in the U.S., we're taking the lessons learned from the Deepwater Horizon accident deeply into the fabric of our organization everywhere. And we have shared what we have learned from the accident with industry, with governments, and regulators in 20 countries around the world. And so, over the last few months, we have put in place a comprehensive program of activity to strengthen safety and risk management in BP. To begin with, we've created a powerful safety and operational risk organization headed by Mark Bly, who led our investigation of the accident. Mark reports directly to me and sits on the executive team. His organization has the resources and the mandate to drive safe and reliable and compliant operations in BP's operations around the world. The new organization is now in action across BP in four main areas. First, it is strengthening and clarifying requirements for safe and compliant operations. Second, it will have more than 500 specialist personnel attached to our business to guide, advise, and if necessary, intervene. And third is providing deep technical expertise to our operating business. And fourth, it is intervening where needed to stop operations and bring about corrective actions. And we're already seeing results. For example, we have shut in production platform to repair the firewater pumps on one of our platforms. In another producing field, we'll shut down to enable pipeline integrity work to be carried out. We've also decided we will not accept rigs that do not conform to our standards and there are a number of cases where we have either turned away the rigs or negotiating for modifications to bring them fully up to our standards. Furthermore, we've also made changes in the management structure introducing three divisions in the upstream exploration, developments and production each of which reports directly to me. This creates much greater clarity and accountability it also brings specialist staff together in teams where they can share knowledge and build capability and within the developments division we now have a single global wells organization which is responsible for drilling all of our wells and doing so to a high and consistent standards globally And over the past four months, we have been reviewing the risk management plans for every one of BP's wells in order to assess their compliance with existing standards. In addition, we are establishing new standards as to compliance, risk management, capability, contractor management, performance indicators, and technology. We're conducting a major review of our risk management system and the intention here is to bring greater clarity and consistency to the way we manage risk, applying best practice risk identification and mitigation standards in a disciplined way across BP. And in support of all of this, we are linking our performance management and our reward system directly to safety and risk management, as well as to the behaviors we want to see. What does this mean in practice? It means that last month, tens of thousands of employees from Azerbaijan to Alaska were each required to state explicitly in their performance contracts how they personally will contribute to safety, to teamwork, and to capability building. And they were also asked to state explicitly how they will contribute to the company's long-term goals as well as setting priorities for the year ahead. In all of this, we're drawing not only on the experiences and best practices of our own industry, but also lessons from other industries that are models for safety and risk management. One of these is the U.S. Nuclear Navy, which was identified by the Presidential Commission on the Deepwater Horizon Accident as a role model in safety. And along with Carl Henrich, I am very pleased that we now have as a board member, Admiral Skip Bowman, who served as the Director of the U.S. Naval nuclear propulsion program. I have met with hundreds of our investors over the past few months and I have been encouraged by the support they've shown for the course BP is taking. Many of our investors recognize the need for BP to have the time and the space necessary to make the changes to make our operations safer and more sustainable. Not every company gets such an opportunity and we do not intend to squander it. We have three strategic priorities in BP to build long-term value. First and foremost, as I've indicated, we're introducing a series of new measures for safety and risk management. Second, we are working hard to earn back trust through our actions and not just our words. And third, with safety and trust as foundations, we're setting out to build value for our shareholders over the long term. In other words, strengthening safety and earning trust are the essential foundations on which we can build a new value proposition for BP designed to create value in a manner that is both safe and sustainable. As well as focusing on outputs in the form of barrels and oil and revenue, we will focus very strongly on the critical inputs that drive delivery, which are safety, capability, technology, and relationships. If we get these right, then I have no doubt that good business will follow. In the near term, we've taken steps to ensure BP is financially sound. The $20 billion trust fund has provided resources to meet individual, business, government, local, state claims, and natural resource damages. And we've announced the sale of up to $30 billion in assets. And we have now agreed to roughly $25 billion of divestments. These divestment proceeds significantly exceeded the book value on those sales. And we are, as the chairman said, resuming payment of a quarterly dividend, and our intention is to grow the level of the dividend in line with the improving circumstances of the company. Like the chairman, I know the suspension of the dividend in 2010 was difficult for many of our shareholders. We intend to build on our strengths in the interest of perspective it is also important to understand that beyond the Gulf of Mexico accident BP's global operations performed well last year. Beyond the impact of the Gulf of Mexico tragedy, which led to a reported loss of $4.9 billion last year, our underlying replacement cost profit, which excludes the costs associated with the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, as well as other non-operating items and fair value accounting effects, was plus twenty point five billion dollars and operating cash flow was twenty nine point six billion dollars we reported reserve replacements so important to an oil company reserve replacements of hundred and six percent which was the 18th consecutive year above 100 percent and we replaced four hundred and seventy percent of our resources it was a very good year for new access with many new opportunities added to the portfolio In refining and marketing, we delivered around 900 million dollars of underlying performance improvement. Now we're looking to the future, and we are planning for the future by looking at the trends in the industry and the ways we can use our strengths to play a part in meeting the world's demand for energy. As the chairman has said, we know that energy demand is set to grow significantly. Our best estimate, given current trends and policy direction, suggests that the demand for energy will grow by as much as 1.7% per year. It's nearly 40% by 2030. And our BP Energy Outlook 2030 projects that 93% of the growth in energy demand will come from the emerging non-OECD economies, as you can see on this striking chart. The environmental implications of this are challenging, and I want to state for the record that this is not what we want to happen. It is a projection. It's not a proposition. In fact, it's a wake-up call. I should remind you that in BP, we advocate stronger policies on climate change, including a widely applied carbon price and transitional incentives to help low-carbon technologies compete at scale with hydrocarbons. However, whatever course policy takes, and even if climate change is robustly addressed, the reality is fossil fuels are projected to provide most of our energy in 2030. In 2030, the energy mix, there will likely be a greater share of natural gas, which is the cleanest hydrocarbon, and a much greater share of renewables. But the world will still need large volumes of oil and given the maturity of many existing fields, much of that oil will need to come from newer sources. Today, for example, around 7% of the world's oil supplies come from deep water, and we expect this to rise to more than 10% by 2020. So we've made some strategic decisions as to how BP intends to participate in this future. We'll continue to hold and invest in positions where BP can create and sustain material and profitable businesses that support long-term energy security. This is good for BP. It's good for BP shareholders. It's good for the consumer. For transport fuel, this means oil and sustainable biofuels. And for heat and power, this chiefly means natural gas and wind. All of these have a significant role to play in BP's long-term energy future. Let me just run through some highlights of each of those areas of investment. In the upstream, we're investing in strategic projects. And our upstream portfolio is rich in growth opportunities. With 32 project startups planned by 2016, these have the potential to contribute around 1 million barrels of oil a day, equivalent to total production, which should more than offset the natural decline of our portfolio. We're investing in exploration, particularly deep water. We have a responsibility to take what we've learned. Exploration is one of our distinctive strengths. We're good at finding oil and gas and that means by which we turn, that's the means of which we turn prospects into value. So we're going to be doubling our investment in exploration over the next few years. We will continue to explore in well-established locations such as Angola, Egypt, Azerbaijan, and indeed the Gulf of Mexico, and the North Sea. But we also expect to test new provinces in Jordan, in Brazil, in the South China Sea, and in Australia. Incidentally, much of our exploration and production will be in deep water. Before April 2010, BP had drilled safely in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico for more than 20 years. Indeed, the governments of Egypt, China, Azerbaijan, and UK have shown confidence in our ability to operate safely at depths as they have signed new deepwater agreements with us recently. We're creating new alliances. For example, we've signed a landmark agreement with Reliance Industries of India to explore and produce in deepwater basins that already provide roughly a third of India's gas supply, as well as forming a joint venture to market gas in India. In Russia, we own half of a very successful joint venture called TNKBP. This is our primary business vehicle in the country, and we are absolutely committed to its strategic investment program. And it has been hugely successful by any measure since its inception in 2003. However, we have also been hoping to conclude further agreements in Russia with Russia's largest oil company, Rosneft including an exchange of shares and involvement in Arctic exploration. This was the transaction that was announced in January of this year. That project has been subject to an injunction granted by a tribunal convened to resolve issues raised regarding the interpretation of our shareholder agreement that we have with our partners in TNKBP. The original deadline for completing the agreements with Rosneft was today. But we in Rostov have agreed to extend the deadline, so we will be working and continuing with the arbitration process and working to bring about a resolution of these issues. Ladies and gentlemen, Russia is one of the world's most important sources of oil and gas, as well as a massive market, and BP needs to be there. It is part of our strategy. We already have a very strong position in the country, and we will continue to pursue all further opportunities there where we can build value for our shareholders. Let me turn to heavy oil. BP is also partnering with Husky Energy and others to develop a further important source of energy, Canada's oil sands. These represent the second largest reserves in the world after the oil fields of Saudi Arabia. Now heavy oil means something different to different people and I think it's as shareholders it is important for you to know that our approach should not be confused with open cast mining we will not engage in mining. I believe mining is what most people visualize when they hear the words heavy oil. We will work with this resource in a way that fits with our long-term responsibilities and objectives using a method called steam-assisted gravity drainage, we call it SAG-D, to extract the oil and an efficient integrated system to transport it. This means we have no tailing ponds, these operations will therefore have a relatively small footprint as you can see here and the land will be reclaimed we will follow all regulatory requirements and consult with local communities including first nations and metis groups on a wells to wheel basis which means from the oil well to the wheel of a vehicle greenhouse gas emissions from Canadian oil produced this way are only marginally higher than those from conventional crudes imported to North America. BP is joining industry peers in research to deploy new technologies aimed at reducing the emissions even further. And in this process, at least 90% of the produced water needed for generating the steam will be continuously recycled. In the downstream, we're reshaping our portfolio in order to drive higher quality returns for our shareholders. And this includes the changing patterns of demand in the world and supply that means acknowledging that there is a flat to declining demand for fuel in the United States and in Europe. You saw that earlier on the chart. And as a consequence, we've taken the difficult but strategically necessary decision to half our U.S. refining capacity and we are retaining positions that have the greatest competitive advantage and we are planning to divest those which will offer more value to others including refineries in Texas City and the Carson refinery in Southern California. We plan to upgrade our fuels value chains in other geographies, explore opportunities in high-growth markets such as Asia, and continue to grow our high-quality lubricants and petrochemicals businesses. And as well as providing the hydrocarbons required over coming years, we're also making serious investments in a focused set of low-carbon energy businesses. And we have invested more than $5 billion over the last five years. We invest where we can grow long-term value, just as in our fossil fuel businesses. In biofuels, we have a growing commercial scale business in Brazilian sugarcane ethanol. Just last month, we announced a new $680 million investment there, which will include two more operating mills. We have an exciting business, a very interesting business in the U.S., with a technology that is designed to make something called lignocellulosic fuel commercial at scale. It is developing biofuels from tropical grasses. We now have 10 operating wind farms of scale in the U.S., with a gross capacity of 1.3 gigawatts. This business is now cash positive and other wind farms will follow. And as to the immediate future, 2011 for us will be a year of consolidation. Rebuilding a foundation as we focus on completing our $30 billion divestment program, meeting our commitments in the US and bringing new rigor to the way we manage risk. Looking back over the year, our thoughts return to the men who lost their lives and to those who were injured and the communities hit by the spill. Often the response to a tragedy defines the character of an organization and the entire management team is determined that we will emerge from this accident as a company that is safer, stronger, more sustainable, and in time, more valuable. We need to earn back your trust and I realize this requires action and not words. But whoever you are here today, supporter or skeptic, I can promise you one thing. BP is changing. BP will act with integrity, honor, and respect. Whatever you think about our business, those are the qualities you should expect to see. It is customary to thank shareholders for their support at these occasions. And this year, I can promise you that the gratitude is even more genuinely and deeply felt. And I am grateful to you and to all our shareholders, individuals, and institutions for staying with us and giving us the opportunity to build for the future. I promise we will do everything in our power to reward your loyalty, earn back your trust by creating value safely and sustainably over the years ahead. Thank you. So,
0: first of all, Bob, thank you very much. May I say that BP is privileged to have Bob as our CEO. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would now like to take questions on the annual report and accounts and on the business of the group generally. Let, let me now explain the arrangements for asking questions. Uh, we have four questions points. We have A, B, C, and D, Um, quite near the front. Only shareholders, proxies, or corporate representatives may ask questions. To do so, so, you must go to one of the uh, question points. When when I ask you to speak, I would like you to please begin by indicating your name and your status. As regular attendees, No, many risks, many people want here to ask questions. So I want to make sure, first of all, that your questions relate to an item of business under discussion. And and now, for example, on the first one, remember that remuneration and election of of directors comes later. Also make sure that you ask a question and, and not make a speech. This should help to ensure that all of you that wish to ask a question have the opportunity to do so. We do have a very broad shareholder base. Many of them are unable to attend a meeting like this, but still will participate in the voting on the resolutions today. They do so by sending a proxy. We will show the proxy votes we have received on this on the slide behind me after the discussion on each of the items of business. So in order for us to have an orderly discussion I would like to try and take several questions on the same topic uh, if there are such Uh, and I would therefore like to ask the staff at each station here to please help me to arrange this. I may also ask for questions on for questions on one topic before before answering uh, giving the breadth of the questions that we anticipate will be raised I will be asking some of my board colleagues also here to assist me and and then I'm confident that between us all that we should be able to answer your questions so we start with a question from which station wants to start. We have one from station number A. And please remember to state your name and status. Yeah, I've got uh, a question for you, Bob,
2: about uh, the... Could you please just state your name and your status? Yeah, so my name is John Benstead and I'm a BP shareholder. And uh, and what I want to talk about is this. It's something that Tony Haywood uh, uh, mentioned once before about uh, having chemistry involved. And certainly with renewables, this needs to be taken into account. And what i ask is that um, uh, on renewables, there's been no mention of geothermal wells, geothermal energy. In fact, it's been the dustbin of the oil industry, you've considered so for years, uh, and because of the, the sort of junk that you've had for developing it, uh, that there have been some dangerous situations, and that should not happen. And uh, if we look at geothermal energy, it's largely a renewable... There's no mention at this meeting, or indeed at others. So presumably, in, in the long term, hopefully uh, you will uh, take this board. Uh, but uh, if you don't, there could be difficulties. And uh, just in conclusion, to say is, and do that, that chemistry is essential. Tony Haywood mentioned it first person to do so because so many people have ignored it and cut out laboratories which has been absurd not just BP but the whole of the oil industry. So uh, what I want you to do on on this Bob is is to uh, look into these and uh, regard them as part of a 21st century portfolio. Thank you John. We
1: will ask Bob to answer about geothermal energy well John thank you Uh, for for those of you who uh, geothermal energy actually employs many of the operations that the oil and gas business is good at so you are right we have just had a technology review of the strategies of renewable energies and we have realized that, uh, that many of the skills we have can apply to geothermal it's very early days It is not an area that we have pursued before but we are in fact talking about it um, and so thank you I, you are exactly right there are many of the cross skills uh, between geothermal and the oil and gas industry we need to look at it carefully to see if it's going to be economic and how we could best do that it's primarily located along the fault lines around the world on chemistry couldn't agree with you more I think um, my colleague Ian Kahn, who runs refining and marketing would would attest to the, the importance of chemistry and what we do, uh, not only in petrochemicals, refining, and biofuels, which is uh, significant amounts of chemistry. Uh, one of the lessons we learned as a result of the accident in the Gulf of Mexico is we have outsourced many of some of the skills that we need. We're bringing in cementing skills, which involves chemistry, back into some of our operations. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm a chemical engineer. Chemistry is at the heart of much we do. Thank you, John. Right, should we move on? Should we take a question from station
0: C? Again, state name and status.
3: Good afternoon. My name is Julie Tanner, and I'm with Christian Brothers Investment Services. I'm also representing a coalition of investors in the UK, US, and continental Europe, including MMA Praxis Mutual Funds other members of the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, the Church Investment Group, Ethos Foundation, and the Ecumenical Council for Corporate Responsibility. Together we have 35 million shares. We are abstaining or voting against the annual report since there's been too little information provided regarding the Safety and Operational Risk Unit and how risk is being managed and overseen by the board. We've completed a detailed assessment of the annual report that identifies gaps that make it difficult for investors to gauge progress and assess performance. In order to make informed decisions regarding our investment in BP, we need more information than is currently provided. Given the impact last year's tragedy tragedy had on stock price, we want to ensure that similar events are prevented While we appreciate engagement, I have come here from the U.S. to ask a question related to the Gulf of Mexico oil spill and the 26 recommendations that came out of the Deepwater Horizon Accident Investigation Report. In the annual report, BP notes that it has derived benefits from the appointment of an external independent expert after the tragic explosion at Texas City in 2005. Since an external independent expert has helped BP and the board to identify areas for improvement in Texas, why has BP not appointed an external independent expert to oversee the implementation of the Gulf recommendations? This could help to ensure timely and thorough implementation of the recommendations from the Bly report and build shareholder confidence and a better understanding of the newly created internal safety and operational risk function. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Julie. Um, there were several several questions involved there. Can, can I just first see if there are any other questions on risk, because I think this is a matter that many of you might want to discuss. So in order to not have overlapping questions, and answers, is there anyone else that wants to ask anything on risk? We have one on D over there.
4: Okay, good afternoon. Um, My name is Robert Barrett, and I'm an ordinary shareholder. I have been to these meetings here before. Um, I'd like to thank you for your... Um, the speech by Chief Executive Bob Dudley, of whom there are many points that answer my questions. However, I did drop down some points which concern my um, um, concerns about uh, the physical risks, and I would like to um, be assured about um, the steps that are being taken to improve the health and safety and the standard of engineering in this group. Um, We did have a huge problem with regards to a a refinery in Texas, which was under the chief executive ship of um, John Brown. Um, I wondered if um, the board could tell us what is happening over there. Um, Secondly, what is happening with regards to um, those partners Halliburton and Transocean, and um, trying to establish their accountability in this. Um, I'm sorry about the 11 workers uh, killed. It was a horrifying um, episode. Um, If one believes what one reads and hears in the media, it was actually a nightmare.
0: All right. Thank you, Robert. We have, I'll take one more and then I think it's time to answer.
5: My name is George Roberts. I'm an ordinary shareholder. I have 14 years of experience in the energy industry in Nigeria and in Western Siberia. I'd like to address this question of risk briefly. I welcome uh, Mr. Dudley. Your acknowledgement that steam-assisted gravity drainage will produce slightly higher greenhouse gases than the ordinary production and we might sort of quibble over the slightly but welcome your acknowledgement that it will be more. So why when you address climate change on page 73 of the annual report you only speak of the technical response which this changes might have in respect of your production operations. You assert that your experience in harsh environments makes you capable of continuing operation in a world of increasingly disrupted climate. How can you win back your shareholders' trust with such a technocentric response to change, which will affect your markets, not to mention all of your consumers. You expect us to trust a company that deals with climate change by asserting that you are good at drilling in deep water.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Now we have a breadth of questions here. Uh, let, let me say to uh, you, George, oil sands, I'm sure, will be, a, will be an important topic here. So I will actually uh, first deal with risks of the other matters and then I'll come back to to your question on oil sands and i'll also ask for further questions on oil sands but but first back to uh, back to Julie and and to the question on risk I will then pass on the question also on the annual report uh, to, uh, uh, to to Bob to see if you want to add further to it um, the um, Generally, the way we work with risk, because this is, this is of course, incredibly important for us in, in the board. Uh, we have to understand that all hydrocarbons comes with risks. So it is important, as I said in my speech, that we do understand risk in the company and that we have plans to mitigate it and to operate safely. That is, that is our job. And the job of the board is, of course, to understand and that comes a little bit back also maybe to George's question. But to understand the totality, the risk appetite that we have in the board. We, we as a board, we oversee the, we need to understand the annual plan and that, we, that all the relevant risks are recognized and that they are managed. And then we make sure that there is a delegation of authority in accordance with this Um, We are overseeing, then, the the, uh, risks that we choose to do so with in the board and its committees, and to make sure that there are also internal control in the company. Uh, Our SEAC committee, Safety, Ethics, Environmental Assurance Committee, oversees all the non-financial risks. Audit committee, of course, the financial risks. The board itself, itself, is overlooking geopolitical and reputation risks. And finally, the Chairman's Committee are looking at management capability. What what we are doing, what we will do differently in addition to what we have done, of course all these matters have been intensely discussed in any company like BP uh, throughout the years. But you have heard many times that we we will look even more into what we have called the very, very small probability high impact risks. We will also look more at gross versus net risk. There is a gross risk. You do take various mitigation steps, which and means that you end up with a net risk. We want to, as a board, understand the full risk and not just the net risk. We will spend more time on that. We will spend more time on risk reward, because, of course, our risk appetite may be higher if there is a higher reward. And we also need to make sure that we bring everybody's experience in to think about the unthinkable. Uh, before I also li- hand it over to to Bob to make some comments here, and that will. I'm sure also include the physical risks on health and safety that, that uh, you talked about and also on the uh, subcontractors. Uh, we have on your other point there, Julie, on an uh, uh, independent external advisor, consultant. Dwayne Wilson has done a, a very appreciative job, a great job with uh, Texas City. And we are evaluating if there is a similar role for someone to play. The problem we a little bit have is that when you do it on refining, Dwayne's role was very well uh, e- e- easy to, to frame, uh, whereas this one is much more general across EMP. So it, should we use that uh, solution, we have to make sure that it's a role that is actually possible to, to, uh, to uh, undertake for someone. Uh, so we, we will come back and, and think more about it
1: on that. But I'll hand over to you, Bob. Let me let me just start, Julie. Thank you for traveling all the way over for for a message on two things: our safety and operational risk organization and the amount that's in the annual report. And secondly, on external experts, um, I, I think you're right. I think the annual report on the safety and operational risk organization is is somewhat light because it reflects 2010. And since the first of this year, you have the early evolution of it, which was only announced and put in place in October. Uh, Since the first of the year, uh, that organization is now operating live with the complete structure and the experts in it. And there's 500 people that are assigned to it um, that have safety and operational uh, expertise that's come from both in different parts of our company and outside the company. Um, we would, I would be happy if, for our team to meet with you and tell you about the progress since actually the publishing of the annual report. Because this is, this is new, it's uh, being put in place, and it's making great progress. And I'm seeing examples of it all across the company. People are raising their hands. We're shutting down operations. We're stopping and doing maintenance work before uh, uh, and not deferring work. And, and it's sometimes shutting in production, which is expensive but it's absolutely the right thing to do. So it's a combination of putting this organization in place and changing the culture. So happy uh, to meet with you. Um, Secondly, on the external expert, we are looking at making a recommendation to the board from the management team to uh, appoint an external expert to look at the implementation and monitor the implementation of the 26 recommendations of the Bly report. Um, that has to do, what, for that monitor, it has to have deep experience in drilling blood preventers, drilling systems on the rig, uh, command systems. And actually, we're finding, it's not so easy to find someone today, but that is what we're in the process of doing, is making that recommendation to the board. And we want to make sure that person is independent and experienced. Um, with the price of oil, everybody wants people like that, um. Uh, Mr. Uh, Or Robert, your points about uh, health and safety and engineering. I mean, it's a very broad point about what we're doing. I think many of those uh, discuss the implementation of the Safety and Operational Risk Organization, which is in action and it is significant. We are bringing in people into the company with naval nuclear backgrounds, nuclear power backgrounds, hazardous chemicals as well to supplement the experience that we have today. if, if I could, Mr. Chairman, ask um, uh, my colleague Ian Kahn to comment on your specific question about what we're doing at Texas City. Please.
6: I, yeah. well, thank you, Bob, Chairman. Uh, Robert, thank you for your question. Uh, an awful lot's been going on at Texas City over what has been six very long years since the isomerization explosion in March 2005. Our action plan, uh, to improve safety was driven from the recommendations of the Baker panel and indeed Dwayne Wilson who was referred to earlier was a member of that panel, indeed as is Skip Bowman on the board today. Uh, That program of work has involved a billion dollars of investment, implementation of management systems, progress at all times observed by the independent expert, a systematic approach to risk management including priority for all resourcing an intensification of our uh, inspection and maintenance program which gets to your point about engineering all of this resulted in a huge burden of inspection requirements two years ago we had nearly two thousand inspections that we were planning to do but had not yet done and I'm pleased to say we've now completely caught up and there were only three remaining at the end of last year. And finally, in the matter of capability, more than 50% of the personnel at Texas City Refinery were not present in 2005, so we've made a significant uh, implementation of additional capabilities. So those are some of the things that that we've done, and I would just say that the process safety performance at Texas City has significantly improved over this time and indeed made a 63% improvement last year on one measure.
0: May I just also reiterate what what Bob actually talked about in his speech, coming back to the exploration and production uh, part of the business. The, The reorganization in the three parts with exploration, development, and production is a very fundamental change in BP. It changes the way the company has worked over the last close to 20 years. And and that combined with your global wealth organization and the safety and operational risk organization, that is quite fundamental. Uh,
1: Contractors, I think, was also a matter. Right. Robert, you asked about the status of the contractors, Halliburton and Transocean. Um, All of the investigation reports and the Presidential Commission report has concluded that it is multi-causal, and multi-party, implying there's multiple responsible parties here. Um, You are right. BP has shouldered all of the burden of the cost to date for the cleanup and the activities in the United States and put aside funding for fines. Um, It is probably not the right thing for us to comment on the legal process in the U.S., Um, but we believe that uh, Halliburton and Transocean clearly played a role in the accident and what happened. So I think this is something that the legal process and time uh, will decide. And if I could just add the comment from uh, George about climate change. And when you read that out of the annual report, I have to admit it sounded a bit technocratic. Um, As a company, know I know what we do inside the company and how we think about um, climate change and BP is widely known as the first oil company to even acknowledge climate change as an urgent issue for justifying precautionary uh, steps in the in in the world that's why we're as an economics unit we share this wake-up call with policymakers around the world we work in partnership with the technology and research to create options uh, for the future, we are in a $500 million over 10 years in Energy Bioscience Institute in the US. We work at the Clean Energy Commercialization Centers in China, and we participate in the policy making debate, for example, in the US, the EU, and Australia, New Zealand, UK, and we argue strongly, and we may be one of the few oil companies who do, to put a price on carbon that will stimulate renewables and low carbon energy. So we are active in this, but we're also not walking away from fossil fuels. We have a role here. You look at the demand curves, we're, we're good at, at providing energy. So it is, it's a balance, and it's gonna be many, many years in a balance.
0: May I just say, uh, George, we will come back to the oil sands question in a second. The
5: oil sands question, it's the market risk. That is not addressed. It's dismissed as a technical question, a technical problem which can be put aside, but in fact your whole annual report depends on the market projections which don't include that as a key factor. Thank you. Sorry, that, that is just to, to separate. There are lots of tar sand questions, yes. but my question is about your dealing of market risk in the the climate change factor with respect to market risk. Mm.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's now see, I think there might be, before we turn to oil sands, there might be one or two questions more on risk. I think we have one on A, and we have one on D. You start with A. Uh,
7: Mr. Chairman, fellow shareholders, My name is Martin Simons and I've been a shareholder of this great company since 1954. That's 57 years. I know I'm not the longest serving shareholder here but I must be one of the longest. So long in tooth I hope you will let me make my points. Welcome to Mr Dudley. He and I, I think, are probably unique in this distinguished meeting of both being graduates of the University of Illinois. So, good luck to you fighting Illini. There are very many upset people here including myself, having been a shareholder so long, I've lost a great deal of my savings income and my capital values. But, to date, it is very encouraging. This is going to be a, a friendly, constructive meeting, unlike the appalling treatment our former chief executive got in the United States. There's no point... In grandstanding, we want light, not heat. Could I remind us all that we work in an industry which is very risky? Those who are older than us will remember the Flixboro explosion, where some 21 people got killed, and the Piper Alpha explosion where 10 times as many people got killed as in our recent terrible accident. Both these accidents were due to foreign companies operating in the United Kingdom. So we are all in this together. There is great risk in this industry. We need only remind ourselves that 21 New Zealanders, a very modern and technically oriented society, died early this year in a coal mine explosion. I'm not making any excuses for these terrible accidents, but I'm afraid human nature being what it is, they will sadly continue to happen from time to time. And I object to the grandstanding of some of our competitors who seem to take a high moral tone. Remember, some of them have been involved in reserve scandals, and there was this huge oil spill in Alaska some years ago. So this is a risky industry, and we've got to appreciate it, all of us. Could I ask you, sir, my first small question? Is would you please give us an indication what percentage of the shareholders have voted when you do indicate the number of votes cast on each occasion? Could I ask, for example, whether BlackRock is present at this meeting? They are our biggest shareholder. Are they here? Well, here we are corporate governance, the biggest American fund operation not at this meeting. I think it's quite a scandal, frankly. What about Legal and General Assurance Company? I hope they're here. Now, a number of people have suggested we reject the annual report. I think that's not constructive. A number of people have suggested we change the chairman of the safety committee. I don't think that's constructive because a change of leadership is going to cause a hiatus. Now, one major point I'd like to raise with you on page 100 of the annual report, which deals with the safety record and performance of our Russian joint venture. I feel very uneasy about the comments you made. There is obviously risk in this joint venture And I would suggest to the partners, our partners, they should watch that hubris does not overtake them and that we are cautious and do our very best to ensure there is another disaster in our major associated company. Thank Thank you. you,
0: Thank you, Martin. And... um, First of all, it's it's, uh, encouraging to hear your supportive uh, comments, and you've been a shareholder since 1954, that, that uh, we, all, we all appreciate. Uh, let me first say that 60% of, of the total number of votes are voting here today. Of course, huge number through proxies. It, it is unfortunately so that in a truly global company, in a truly global world, with, with shareholders, the majority not living here, Uh, proxies is the the most efficient way to make this in a a meaningful way. Uh, I think uh, when it comes to uh, Russia, Bob, who served there as the
1: CEO for five years, I think you should uh, comment. The t and KBP joint venture you mentioned, 50% is owned by BP, and 50% is owned uh, by uh, Russian businessmen. Um, It was a combination in 2003 of three Two Russian, two large Russian companies in BP's operations, and I was there, and I can, I can tell you, the first year we operated, the, that venture had uh, more than 50 fatalities, and that uh, last year, uh, that company, which has more employees than BP, did have four fatalities. But I watched over the f- five to six years, BP bring in its sense of environmental responsibility and safety and absolutely transform those companies. You are absolutely right, there should be no sense of hubris about that from the company or certainly from BP. We have uh, active involvement on the board and safety and pushing to make sure the capital investments are made in safety related and maintenance is, um, is part of what we do every year. So it's a good point, what you raise. Thank you. All
0: right. I will now take a final question on risk. Then we need to move on because there are many on the list that want to speak. Please.
8: Good morning. Uh, My name is Robert Morris. I am representing my wife, Rosemary. I would like to ask this question. Considering the reports when the accident in the gulf happened of the the, the shortcomings on the rig that exploded why uh, what is the board's response to the reported by the in the media uh, decision by that company and its supporters to honor with an award, the designer of that rig and its failed safety.
1: Right, I'll pass that on to Bob. I think uh, I think what you're referring to. I'm not sure where where you are. Ah, uh, uh, okay, Robert, and for Rosemary. Um, what you're referring to is that on the night of the accident, there was, in fact, a small ceremony recognizing the safety performance of the rig, which had not had an accident uh, for seven years. And it is one of those great ironies of the event that happened, that the event and the loss of the well control occurred on that night, um, and I think it's, um it highlights that I don't think people were complacent, I don't think they were ignoring what they were doing, but it is just one of those great ironies. Uh,
8: so, excuse me, um, could I, I, can I come it? back
0: on that, please? Yes, I just wanna make sure I see where you're sitting, it feels impolite uh, not to...
8: Yeah, I'm sitting because I'm blind. Yes. Um, I agree with what you say, and it's probably the, the reasons for that award. But remember that companies not only thrive by what they do, but what they are perceived to do. And the general public and many shareholders outside will have heard that on the media, but the media doesn't tell them what you have just said. They just say, that they gave award to a a designer who in also the media reckons that the safety of the rig was suspect. And that is what the media will, uh, that's what the media puts out, that's what the people would hear. And BP's reputation is very much uh, tied up with the perception of the general public and that is something that my wife and I regret.
0: No, and I, and, and I can assure you that, that we fully agree with what you are saying. And to rebuild reputation and trust in BP is really the focus for, for us in, in BP. And um, we, we lived in a 24 by seven media world that was demonstrated more than ever before in the accident in the Gulf. And, and it wasn't easy to get any meaningful messages across. But, but I can assure you that we are committed to rebuild reputation and trust, including uh, making sure that we get the right messages out. Uh, Should we then move on to oil sands? And I think we
9: have uh, Station C that wants to start here. Uh, bonjour. Dansé. My name is Clayton Thomas Mueller and I am the tar sands campaigner with the North American-based Indigenous Environmental Network. I just want to say it's a pleasure to speak to all the shareholders and to address the board today. Fort Mackay Cree Nation is surrounded by tar sands development and its associated tailings ponds so large you can see them from outer space. Fort Mackay First Nations community members wanted to raise issue with BP's lack of consultation over its new Sunrise and Sutu project. Fort Mackay First Nation is situated in the heart of oil sands. You can go in any direction, within 20 miles you'll find an oil sands plant. We refer to our little community of 700 people as ground zero because we are first impacted. How does the Husky BP Sunrise project impact us? Well, to start with, there are several parcels of land dedicated to the use of traditional trappers from the First Nation. But because the animals have disappeared, these trap lines are no longer used for trapping. However, they have become islands of cultural identity for local First Nation. We use them to escape the industrial activity and as a place to teach our children traditional ways. We are people whose very cultural identity are linked to the land. Our languages are rich with descriptions of the land and nature. The Husky BP Sunrise Project has interfered with trap lines in the area, reducing access for local people and taking away the peace of our bush life. High traffic volumes and industrial activity have taken away this peace, and in some cases have taken the land itself away. SAG-D projects are touted as cleaner than the conventional mining process. But in fact, the sheer volumes of water used impact surrounding land, drying up the muskeg, reducing animal habitat, and we still get the air pollution, and with it, more sickness in our communities. And so the question that I bring today is, with opposition steadily increasing against the Canadian tar sands extraction in all forms with liabilities of project delays and or stoppages associated to the intervention on the part of First Nations governments with ever-increasing numbers of litigations being filed by First Nations asserting their priority land rights which are constitutionally enshrined and protected in the state of Canada most notably Beaver Lake Cree Nation, and Athabasca Chippewan Denny Nation, both of which have lawsuits against government regulators and tar sands operators. Can you please share with us how BP is managing this rapidly changing legal landscape in Canada and the risk that this presents to the interests of your shareholders? And in conclusion, I would also like to ask that the community representatives who First Nations representatives from North America have come to this meeting with to raise concerns, that the community representatives from the Gulf Coast who have come to have their voices heard be let into the meeting. They have shares, proxy access, but for some reason they've been barred. And I think it's very important that you the board and that you the shareholders listen to their voices because they bring the message from the grassroots in the Gulf of Mexico. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, thanks.
0: thanks, Clayton, for your comments. And, and, and I remember you well from last year, also. You spoke well even then. Uh, any other questions? A, we have questions on oil sands.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is Miles Litvinoff. I'm here to represent the Ecumenical Council for Corporate Responsibility, which is a shareholder in BP. Page 74 of our company's annual report states that BP, quote, reviewed and approved the decision to invest in Canadian oil sands projects, taking into consideration greenhouse gas emissions, impacts on land, water use, and local communities, unquote. I would like to draw your attention to a briefing paper published in 2010 by the Canadian Friends Service Committee, the Canadian Quakers, which documents widespread concerns about the health impacts of oil sands developments on First Nations communities. The Quakers paper cites two studies by D.W. Schindler of the Department of Biological Sciences, University of Alberta, Edmonton, and colleagues, published in 2009 and 10 in the Proceedings of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. These studies found strong indications of waterborne and airborne particulates from oil sands development with potential risks to human health. While BP's and its joint venture partner Husky's use of the steam assisted gravity drainage process rather than mining for the Sunrise project may reduce the risk of some negative environmental impacts on health, research published by the Pembina Institute last year indicates a lack of public information and discussion about the potential cumulative impacts of in-situ oil sands development on environment and health. Can the board reassure shareholders that our company has conducted full due diligence with regard to potential cumulative health impacts on local communities? If so, what form has this due diligence taken and are the results in the
0: public domain? Thank you. All right. Any more on oil sands? B. Yes.
11: Uh, my name is Kishin Namani. Good afternoon to all. 20th April was a tragic day last year. 20th April 2000 was a tragic day for BB. And the worst, probably, in the history, is he. Eleven people died. Okay, can, and I,
0: can I just ask you is this an oil sands question?
11: No, it's about the, uh, about this, uh, um, 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 uh, Mexico. But uh, then, I, then the,
0: I will ask you to just hold your question just one yeah, second. Can, I, can, I, yeah, can, I, can I, be, I carry on and ask you? To. No, please, because we, I, I want to take, gather the all sense question in one go here so we get it as, as, as efficient as possible. Okay, I'll sure. be back with you in a second. I promise you'll okay. be the first after all sands. We go to station C.
12: Can't say. Thank you for having me here. My name is Melina Miowapin labokan Masmo. I come from the Lubicon Cree First Nation in northern Alberta, where the tar sands regions are located. BP's claims its newest venture in the Alberta tar sands, the Sunrise Project, is an environmentally responsible alternative to open pit mining because it will utilize in-situ methods of extraction. However, according to industry data and Environment Canada documents, producing the tar sands by in-situ or SAGD methods actually emits more greenhouse gas emissions per barrel than surface mining does. In fact, fact, in-situ requires four times as much natural gas to produce a barrel of tar sands than open pit mining does. And on an average, in-situ consumes 4.8 barrels of water one barrel of oil that is derived from the tar sands by in situ methods. Instead of surface tailing ponds that in open pit mining produce, SAGD will result in underground tailing ponds or will be transported elsewhere to landfills, both of which will threaten freshwater aquifers that communities there depend on. There are many in situ injection sites on my First Nations territory. They are contaminating the water. They are polluting the air, and they are dramatically disrupting the local ecosystems by further fragmenting the boreal forest. The tar sands are not a sustainable source of energy, whether extracted through SAG-D or open pit mining. Now, given the reality of impending climate legislation, why is BP putting its shareholders' investments at risk and falsely claiming that in situ extraction is an environmentally sound alternative to open pit mining? Thank you.
0: So, thank you, Melina. Anything else before we respond on oil sands? All right. Well, let let me then first, before I hand over to Bob, to give a little bit more of background here. Uh, Of course, we, uh, as, as you rightfully said, Bob, this is... The oil sands represent some hundred and seven, is estimated to represent some hundred and seventy billion barrels of oil, the second largest oil reserves in the world after Saudi Arabia. Um, North America is, is, is importing almost seventy percent of its oil and is very dependent on finding its own oil resources. And um, there is where the the political leaders of, of Canada um, are, of course, the body in which decisions are taken on whether to exploit the oil sands or not. Uh, it, is, it is also so that some 20% of the oil sands can be extracted or uh, e- explored through mining, surface mining, but some 80% need some sort of method like SAGD. And, and Bob has given all the data about uh, about the, the how it works. Um, it is so that uh, of the leased land that we get uh, for for the oil sands, SAGD, only 5% or so is used for the operations itself. And uh, once and, and it's all a closed system. The steam is injected into the ground. It melts the oil. The oil is collected, produced to the surface in a closed system, and brought down to our refinery in Toledo. Um, so it's, in the, in, it's, of course, in that sense, a, a good system. Um, after, <coughs> after the extraction is concluded, the land is reclaimed, and this is done in, in accordance with strict rules from the from the government and from the the regulator. That doesn't mean that I don't understand uh, Clayton's point about what happens with any industrial activity somewhere. So that is, of course, considerations that your your leaders must do when they decide on, on where to allow it or not. That That's similar to any other industrial activity. Uh, but I'll, I'll ask Bob to um, answer further here, please.
1: Well, thank you, Clayton, Miles, and Melita. Um, we we do believe that SAGD developments are very different than mining, large open cast mining with large tailing systems. We just fundamentally believe it has much smaller footprint on the land. Um, we have the Sunrise project we were talking about uh, is is operated by Husky, which we've just recently uh, joined with them. Um, those projects and the plans are developed in consultation with. Um, Someone's okay? Um, Have a little excitement up here on the left, on your right. Um, I think you should continue. Well, well, so Malita, we do believe, again, that that SAGD developments are, are very, very different and the footprints of those developments are much, much smaller than open cast mining. The projects have been developed in consultation with uh, native peoples as well as uh, regional governments in Alberta, as well as the Canadian government. Let me just take a few points here uh, around water. For example, the ratio of water we use to steam is three to one, and 90% of that is recycled. Um, We manage it With many of the legislation the ground measures are in place to protect the air land and water the regulatory environment I think is very strong there air quality monitoring air quality is consistently monitored across the the region there uh, By 16 different stations air quality the Alberta region is rated good the highest quality level 95% of the time water quality Alberta is monitoring the water quality in the oil sands region since the 70s. There's a lot of data on it. Local governments monitor it. They prove it ensure the compliance of the project with the water quality. So we're going to work with the Alberta Regulatory Enhancement Project to ensure that Alberta has a a very competitive regulatory system. I think there's a very strong environmental commitment there. I know oil sands are controversial, but we as a company believe strongly the footprint is much smaller 90% of the water recycled um, and the water that comes up is from non potable reservoirs I know there's a debate about this but we won't invest in mining and SAGD we think it's good for the people the amount of Aboriginal investment and in the workforce there in Alberta is high there's more um, uh, uh, native. In native people in the workforce than the percentage of the people in Alberta, for sure. Um, and the value of the contracts between the oil sands companies and the aboriginal owned companies was uh, 575 million dollars last year, which is up from 412 million in 2006. So, there are always these trade-offs about development and technology and the environment, and I think we're doing this in, in a very, very responsible way. All right, <clears throat> I'm sorry
0: about the disturbance. We, they, obviously, people who have very strong emotions and, and, and uh, wish, to, wish to show that, uh, still, I think it's important. This is a private meeting that we can go through our discussions in, in, a, in a good and reasonable way. Uh, further points on oil sands. So we'll move to your, you again, please go ahead.
11: Thank you, Chairman. Now, my name is Kishin Namani. Good afternoon, all. 20th April 2010 was a tragic day and the worst in the history of BP. 11 people died. I do feel it, and I send condolence messages to them. And I even saw more than 3,000 people died due to 9-11, and more than 15,000 people died in gas tragedy at Bhopal in India. When I came in this morning, somebody gave me this leaflet, you see, stop beeping. Now, that said, that one of the chap, 22 year old man, Paul Doom, was, uh, he'd there through the Gulf, you see, at uh, Mexico. And now he's suffering from dizziness, loss of memory, and various other things. When I think about those people in Bhopal who have lost their eyesight, not one, not two, thousands and thousands of people, they are still suffering because of that gas leak, you see. No one has bothered to take any action, either the President Obama or any of his administration. Now, this tragedy is not the first time in this area. Hurricane Katrina, this happened in Gulf Coast in August 2005. BP wasn't responsible for that. That was a nature, natural thing. President Obama, four times he flew to that area. And compared to the 9-11, now it wasn't 9-11, that was a deliberate attempt. This was not a 9-11, it was an accident. Even his wife went around and criticized BP. Now, our David Cameron's wife, Samantha, she won't go and criticize the companies, here, see? Prime Minister May. And Tony Hayward, how he was treated in Senate, the board's responsibility was to protect Tony Hayward, as if he was a criminal. I saw the proceedings, Senate's proceeding, how he was treated. That was not the right way, whereas, Irene Rosenfield of She refused to attend our sovereign parliament to answer it. She gave two fingers to our sovereign parliament. She refused to attend this. Whereas Warren Anderson, who was responsible for the gas leak in Bhopal, he ran away from India. He's not prepared to face the Supreme Court. Why? Because it's only the BP's chief executive. Who was prepared to answer because we are the honest company here?
0: Thank you, thank you. Do you have a particular question? Cha- chairman, I'm coming
11: to the question you referred. I'm, I'm referring to the, because please, you, you had said this. Please now, go to your, your question. Th- this one is connected with uh, your uh, uh, dividend, which you referred that the board has decided. Chairman, yep. I wasn't born yesterday. Yes. I'm expecting a, a telegram from the Queen in due course. You, know, so I can, you can understand, you see. This was a media force, and also the Obama who forced you to stop this dividend, you see. Whereas you, you continue to pay your two executive directors bonuses, if you are honest enough, you should not have paid that. Exe- not only that, the third director to whom you criticize you yourself criticize. There should not have been 690,000 690, payoff, 55,000 benefits, plus 200,000 to go and enjoy yourself. You criticize it. Yeah. You, can, you have got teeth, but you can't bite it. You should have taken action. Chairman, before this late Higgs report came in, I was the one in this country when I said that non-executive directors are not being paid enough they were being paid 15 to 30 thousand. I said double their money now, and now they are getting about 70. But they, they are not carrying out their work properly. I criticize them because the remuneration director who failed in his duty, to he should not have grown this when this situation was there. You see, so I criticize the board. They should be real independent director. Nomination committee should examine properly before appointing this. Not that you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You see, that's how the boards are. That's why the Goodwin did in, 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 in uh, RBS. His board supported him. If the board had been honest enough, non-executive director, they should not have supported. I criticize HBS, See my views on internet. I forecast this in 2008. What's happening to banking? You see, Chairman. Now, I ca- uh, the, the, oh, how you, paid, uh, now yeah. you have paid? Now you have paid 40.9 billion. You have provided at the end of the year 31st, and there have been 4,608 uh, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, complaints also about this. And you have c- created 20,000 fund also. Can I can I che- now chair I Chairman, to the last I, one? Can- now I am coming to that. 20,000 fund. Yeah, but, why why there is no fund for those poor? Poor well, uh, one rule for the poor another rule for the rich. America can afford it. They should pass on this money, which fund you have created, to those Bhopal people in India who are suffering. And you tell Obama, yourself, as well as Bob Bob Dudley, and also other Americans, that he should look after those poor people. And this is hypocrisy, the one rule for rich, another rule for poor. Do something about those people who are suffering there, who are blind, the, tell Obama to um, have his name there, Obama Village, Obama Town, and help those people. That's what
0: I'm asking you to do next time. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I um, no 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 real question other than, than of course to take on board what you're saying. Um, I think we we are um, there. Are many many difficult matters. Uh, I think we. Uh, we need to reflect on that. Thank you. There are now, next one is on station C, I think.
13: Yes, uh, thank you. Um, and um, I applaud the passion with which our previous shareholders spoke. My name is Antonia Yuhas, and I'm also a BP shareholder. I came from California. I'm the director of an energy program at a human rights organization called Global Exchange, and I specialize in oil operations. I've written my third book, which I'd like to um, offer to Mr. Dudley, called Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. Um, There's a great deal in it about uh, your predecessor that I think you'll find um, useful and informative, and I'd very much like to Offer it to you. I wrote the book after spending eight months embedded within those communities in the United States Gulf Coast most directly impacted by the BP oil spill. And I have several questions as a result of that time and that experience about BP's ongoing deep water operations, which you have said at the beginning uh, will be an increasing amount of your portfolio and the safety of those operations. I came here today with a delegation of residents from the United States Gulf Coast who traveled from Louisiana, from Texas, from the most hardest hit communities. These are the people, these are um, Fisher people, Tracy Coons and her husband Mike, Byron and Ancalade, Diane Wilson, Fishers who also represent Fisher's associations who came on behalf of their membership, their communities most harmed by the disaster, to speak to the shareholders uh they had legal proxies to attend they were however denied entrance with those legal proxies which of course um is is an illegal op, uh, action uh, for a publicly owned company to deny access to shareholders and their proxies they came because they wanted to talk to the board the executives they wanted to talk to the shareholders about the ongoing devastation that is still happening in the gulf We have livelihoods that are still impacted. We still have oil uh, coating the bottom of the ocean. We still have dispersant coating the bottom of the ocean. We still have waves that roll in and oil rolls in with it. We stick a stick in the sand and there's still oil there. What we don't have at the bottom of the ocean is the life that is supposed to be there. Everything from worms to seahorses, but for many, most importantly, the baby oysters, the baby shrimp that are supposed to reside in the Gulf, that are supposed to provide the livelihoods for communities there, and they're very concerned about five years out, six six years out, what's going to happen. And we're very concerned about the fact that BP is still fighting with our laws. We have something called the Clean Water Act. Under the Clean Water Act, BP is obligated to pay between $1,000 and $4,300 per barrel of oil spill. The commissions that you cited at the beginning of this presentation have all concluded that 5 million barrels of oil were spilled, 210 million gallons of oil. To restore the Gulf, to take care of your financial obli- uh, obligations, your legal obligations, that's a $20 billion fee simply for the oil spilled. However, we have heard that in court proceedings, BP is refusing to pay that money or trying to get around paying that money, instead believes that a day rate is more appropriate, a $3 million total fee for what you owe to the Gulf, $3 million versus $20 billion, and that in public and in the press you're saying that this is, um, that you are adhering to your financial obligations and, and that's a problem. Um, we also need to be concerned about ongoing operations, not just cleanup, because of course in the documents that BP presented to the United States government prior to beginning the operations of the Macondo well in the Deepwater Horizon, you asserted that you had the capacity, knowledge, know-how, technology, to deal with the Deepwater blowout. A Deepwater blowout happened, and Mr. Dudley, your predecessor, then announced shortly thereafter to the world, that he didn't really know what to do in the case of a deep water blowout, that we were gonna apply shallow water technology to the deep water blowout. And I don't isolate BP. Chevron didn't know Exxon, didn't know Shell, didn't know Transocean, didn't know Halliburton, Cameron. But
0: you you, also... Will you you come to a question?
13: Absolutely. Um, You also then asserted that you had the capacity to deal with 300,000 barrels of oil a day spill when this was only 80,000 barrels a day only and you didn't have the capacity. So I'd like to know as a question um, that you, ha- you had guaranteed your capacity to deal with the deep water blowout, you had guaranteed your capacity to deal with 300,000 barrels of oil a day of an oil spill, yet it was very clear that neither of those commitments uh, were something that you actually had the capacity to do. And do we now have, and what are you offering us as a guarantee for the safety of the ongoing deepwater operations that you're doing and those mo- those operations moving ever deeper. But also because the other Gulf residents couldn't be here and because we're talking about safety, I was, I was brought here with an obligation, and that was by Keith Jones, who is the father of Gordon Jones, who died aboard the Deepwater Horizon. His I'll son you- was 28 years old, and he asked me, to read a brief statement that he have, submitted. No, I will have to. I will have his to. His son, um, I will Gordon, have to ask died you, aboard the rig, but you don't uh, want to hear that voice
0: uh, of Antonia, why he, his I think concerns
13: should, that he was unable to bring.
0: Antonia, may I, I read a
13: paragraph from the father of a son who died aboard the Deepwater Horizon? Yes, read it. Thank you. Yes, so, Keith Jones, his son, was 28 years old when he died aboard the Deepwater Horizon. And one question that he has for the board because he couldn't be here today, he asked why was Gordon taken from those who love him so? This was no act of God. This was not a blowout that was inevitable. No, BP, Transocean and Halliburton, could have prevented this blowout. They could have prevented the blowout and still harvested the riches that lay below. They could have carefully and safely completed this well. But to complete the well safely would have taken a little more time and a little more money. And you were you, were you, he asks, just too greedy to wait. You had to make more money faster, more money faster. And if that put those who were on the rig at risk, well, sometimes one has to take a few chances, right? After all, none of you were on that rig. You weren't rolling the dice with the lives of your sons or daughters, but you were rolling the dice with my son's life, and you lost. I would like to know on behalf of his grandsons what you intend to do differently today. Thank you.
0: Let me first say that uh, nothing that we do can bring the 11 lives lost back. And this this is an accident that I said has saddened and shocked us all. This is an accident that should not have happened. And we are, as a company, absolutely committed. And I am, and the board is, and everybody, everybody are, committed to do everything we possibly can to not make this happen again. You, you must rest assured on that. Um, we, the, the, the Presidential Commission concluded, as you are rightfully saying, that we have all something to learn from this. We have all something to learn, especially on, on, the, well, on, on, on lots of matters, but including, as you also are saying, on the spill response. And that is also why I believe the moratorium was introduced, uh, to make sure that before, before activities goes on, that, that we are all, as an industry, because it's it is this is as we've said, it's multi course multi-companies, so it's a whole chain of things that has to work. So we are all prepared to deal with a situation like this in in a much in a much better way. Yeah. Um, but let me um, let me turn to Bob to fill you in, especially also a little bit on on where we are right now, where, where things have how things have developed.
1: Well, I think, Antonio, many of your statements sounded like they were represented for a plaintiff attorney, because I I have differences of many of the comments that you made, but we certainly are deeply impacted, (laughs) deeply impacted by the 11 men who died, And, and we've recognized one of those, and I'm actually going to read out to the group here the names of the 11 people so we can recognize all of them. And let me just do that for a moment from the representatives of Transocean and a company called MI Gordon Jones is one of those from MI Jason Anderson, Aaron Dale Burkine, Donald Clark, Stephen Curtis, Roy Wyatt Kemp, Carl Dale Kleppinger, Blair Manuel, Dewey Rivette, Shane Roshto, Adam Weiss. Most of them lived in Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, we're deeply aware of the impact that it's caused on those families, and we have anonymously donated to support uh, the, the memorial funds for those families. I'm going to turn from that subject to some of your statements about oil. BP does disagree with the amount of oil. There is no Uh, study which has confirmed the amount of oil that leaked into the ocean. As you said, as a shareholder you should be concerned about a number that is too high or a representation of gross negligence, which multiplies a fine from 1,100 barrels to uh, $4,400 dollars per barrel. My simplistic view, what we saw over the course of the summer, was the equivalent of a fire hydrant on the bottom of the seabed, and over the course of the summer, in order to cap and stop that well, we removed metal, and the rate increased over the summer. We have fundamental scientific difference with the estimates that were put out very early by the government, and the blowout preventer um, analysis is still ongoing, which will be key to determining the amount of fluid out of the well. BP will meet its obligations. It, of course, will pay fines. It will go through that process uh, as a good corporate citizen. In the very beginning, uh, there is, in the Oil Pollution Act, of 1990 that was established following the Exxon Valdez spill. It set a, a maximum liability of $75 million in the case of a spill. Immediately BP said, we are not going to be held to that cap. We are going to do what's required. We mobilize 48,000 people. We still have 1,500 people working across the Gulf. We're spending $5 million a day, still cleaning on the Gulf waiting for if there is more oil. I disagree, I, I'm from that area. I definitely disagree with your assessment that the BP oil spill has removed life from the bottom of, of the ocean. If you know about the, the delta of the Mississippi, you will know that the fertilizers that have come down through the central United States into the Gulf of Mexico has, has made that for years. A lifeless zone in some of those areas. It is something that, the, that policy-wise, we all need to help try to try to change. But to to say all that damage is due to the BP oil spill under the water, which you can't see and I can't see, um, is not right. Um, I think you made a lot of other comments there but just everyone here as shareholders need to know and I think our actions are going to speak very loudly in terms of our role as a corporate citizen in responding to the accident
0: let, let me uh, let me just say that that for the benefit of time, I know with the difficult year that we have been through that many of you have much on your mind, but I will have to urge you not to make long speeches, but ask questions. Otherwise, other people will not at the end have the right or or opportunity to to actually uh, ask their questions. Please.
13: Um, I was just wondering if you could address the issue of the Gulf Coast residents who were denied proxy access yeah, or were denied was, access to be here today. I was
0: going to do that, yeah, and, and, and I'm just learning here as we stand that there are a few people there. I think there are five, there are five, five people that that came as a group and and were they had proxies, but security did not allow them to enter into the meeting, as they. Uh, thought that they may disrupt the meeting in a way that, that we didn't want to happen. Um, I cannot do anything else than accept their advice, but I would say though that I think everybody in this room agrees that you have represented them very well. Your, your points have been very clear and, and I hope we have responded in a, in a good way. Uh, so we go to station number D. Hello. Uh, Peter Grosvenor, ordinary shareholder.
6: Very short question. I think the shareholders are entitled to know more about the status of our claims claims against Transocean and Halliburton. Mr. Dudley was very coy about it. If there's one thing we've learned from last year's tragedy, it's the need for transparency. Come on, Bob, give us the facts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well... Let me just say that the board is very committed to make sure that everybody steps up to their responsibilities. They should do
1: what BP has done. Yeah, I I would just, Carl Hunnick, thank you. I would, Peter, I would just say that we do believe that they uh, bear responsibility for part of the action. A number of the companies, including our working interest owners, in uh, the lease, which is a company called Anadarko, Japanese company, Mitsui or Moex, uh, who who signed contracts as responsible parties, uh, for as, as did all of us who take on the oil exploration. Um, I, all I'll, I'll say, Peter, is that we are incredibly active, watching very very carefully. We have options of entering into arbitration, uh, legal. Uh, settlements or working its way through the courts and I think that I would just keep your eye on what happens uh, over the next uh, two months because it'll give you uh, an indication of which of those options that we'll pursue. I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a general counsel who's not present here. I'd rather he answer you but I can just tell you Peter that we' we're, we're not idle on this. All right, we go to station A.
14: Thank you, Chairman. My name is Paul Arden-Jones. I'm a shareholder, a former employee, and a pensioner. And and I'd like to ask you three questions about Russia. You'll be relieved relieved to know I'm not going to make a speech. Just ask three quick questions. One, were you surprised uh, when TNK uh, interfered with the Rosneft deal? Two, uh, why did you not bring them on side? before you, you announce the deal, and three, and this is perhaps a bit unfair, in view of Bob Dudley's previous experience in Russia, would it not be better to have somebody else leading the discussions to sort the matter out?
0: Well, let, let me just first say that uh, we as I said in my speech, we came to Russia in the 90s. We formed a joint venture with uh, Rosneft to explore Sakhalin offshore. We then formed a joint venture in 2002 with Rosneft to explore the Arctic in an initial phase. Um, 2003, when we formed a joint venture um, where t and was doing onshore business, we offered the Arctic to TNK. And they concluded that this was not in their interest because the Arctic is about investing for 10, 20 years and harvesting 20, 30, 40 years down, which was not in the interest of these individuals. We have continuously got assurances and still believe that they are not, it's not in their interest to go to Russia. So in that sense, the, the, the whole discussion is more about our relationships, how these relationships will develop as we go along. But I actually don't think that we have conflicting views on, on, on Russia. Uh, I don't think it would have been a, a possibility to bring them on site more than we thought we had. Um, I, I don't think there was room to really maneuver there. I think when it comes to Bob's role, I mean, it's a, I think we are, we should remember that we are, I think, five times bigger than anyone else of the international oil companies in Russia. Russia has been very successful for us, uh, although it's been bumpy at times. But we, invested, we have invested at the start of the joint venture $9 billion. We have got $16 billion out in just dividends in these eight years and we are sitting with an asset that is worth if you read the papers at least 25 30 billion so it's one of the most successful oil projects in the world over the last decade so one must have that in mind when you also look at what is happening this is an emerging market it's a new nation things are not stable and and in the way that maybe they are we we are used to in our countries So it is a rocky terrain. Uh, This is about an opportunity that will pay back in the 20s and 30s. And we are hopeful that um, we will get our way there. Bob is, I think, everyone in the, every Westerner in the whole world, nobody's more experienced working in Russia than Bob. And and I must say that with all the meetings I have, Bob is extremely appreciated in Russia. He is, some may, Think that Bob is wounded, but that was as as they all say. This is not personal. Mm. Bob is Bob is well received there, so I think we have, Bob is an asset. But but there is a team. There are many involved here. It's just not just Bob. All right.
14: Uh, well, Chancellor. Uh, I, yes. I, I, I don't want to rub it in. You obviously don't want to answer my questions. I can understand why you don't want to answer them. But uh, I just wonder. Could you just then go a little bit further and say? Are you really confident that this will be sorted out in a satisfactory way in the
0: end? Well, I I, I think we have to be be realistic. We are in the middle of a process which is involving three parties, and exactly how that will unfold, um, I I don't think we we should speculate here. But but I can assure you that we will do what we can to to land it in a good way. opportunities and, and, and for, for everyone here if we, if we do it right. Sorry for not being more specific. Please, be.
15: My name is Alan McDougall. I'm the managing director of PIRC. We're a corporate governance advisory firm. I'm also representing the combined investment in BP of 54 public sector pension funds in the UK, for whom BP is their largest single investment. Um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about the accounts. or get transported to Mars. Um, The first one is, uh, it's disappointing to see that there is not uh, an opportunity to vote on the final dividend on the agenda. Increasing numbers of companies are failing to allow shareholders to vote on the declaration of the final dividend. And we think it's something very important given the fact that shareholders' role is to approve that final dividend essentially. So we'd like to see the company do that in future. The second question is, You may have noticed a report two weeks ago published by the uh, Economic Affairs Committee of the House of Lords in the UK Parliament, which essentially castigated the audit profession for failing on the job to protect us from the crisis in the banks. I'd like to know whether or not the Audit Committee will formally consider and respond on a proposal. Uh, as outlined in a 10-minute rule bill appearing before the House of Commons very shortly, to produce a second set of accounts according to Companies Act standard accounting procedures as well as the international financial reporting standards which your current accounts have been prepared under. The fundamental point about this is that IFRS does not allow shareholders a clear picture of assets and liabilities in the accounts, and therefore in terms of the operation of the company. So I'm not asking for you to make a commitment now. All I'm asking you to do is to explore that possibility formally at the audit committee. And I'm sure with the appointment of Brendan Nelson, you'll get some expert
0: inside help doing that. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, Let me just say that there there are many of us that that, um, would agree that RFIS and, and further... Further, the further development of accounting standards doesn't make it easier for, for most people to, under, to understand. Uh, the final dividend, on that matter, we have paid interim dividends since, 19, since 1998. And, and that means that we are paying dividends in an interim way uh, in every quarter. And, and, and that, that means that we can all have our pays every quarter. And that is the way we have done it. And, of course, everything can always be reviewed and changed, but that's, that's the way we do it. I will actually see if, if uh, we have Douglas here, who um, our head of audit, who is, has been eager to speak.
16: Um, i look forward to uh, reviewing the 10-minute uh, uh, ruler amendment that you talked about. I have to say, as someone who's spent, gosh... 20 years as an advocate of IFRS, I think we should try and make it better if there are deficiencies rather than have multiple sets of accounts and try and reconcile between the two. I think uh, the the burden on the finance functions of an organisation as complicated as this are, are difficult enough doing one set of accounts to the high standard you would expect. I think to ask them to do two would be an unnecessary expense. So let's try and use IFRS, make it better, and improve transparency rather than have a second set of accounts, I think. All right. C, please.
17: John Farmer, Chairman Shareholder. There are four fairly quick questions, and in deference to a request to link to what you said about Russia, I'll come to that in my second. My first question is what, hierarchy, what hierarchical plan does BP have, if any to redress and improve total shareholder return, because even in 2009, before the Gulf of Mexico spill, your five-year total shareholder return, as the 2009 remuneration report shows, was only 42% lacklustre. And in 2010, it's 13% negative how after the divestments, which presumably were of assets acquired to boost total shareholder return, are you going to recover from this shortfall? Because you've said little about it in your presentation so far. It is a huge uh, shortfall and One wonders how you're going not only to restore total shareholder return to positive, but also to compete with companies in other sectors, because, as I've said, 42% is generally that luster. That is my first question. The second relates to Russia. Given the importance of TNKBP to the parent company BP. How are you going to address what is obvious dysfunctionality in the BP, in the TNK BP board? Because, as you rightly said, it's been a bumpy relationship and shows scant sign of improvement. And whilst I appreciate you have some confidentiality considerations. Sherald is shortly entitled to know how you're gonna manage uh, this rocky situation. That is my third question, which I accept you may partly have tried to answer. My third question, Chairman, is really directed through you to Senior uh, Senior Non-Executive Director, uh, Sir William Castell. What plans have you to ensure proper leadership, of this company chem in the gulf of mexico spill were perceived as a shrinking violet the current chief executive is tarnished by the bp uh, tnk bp involvement he was a refugee from russia owing to the apparent breakdown of that Relationship, and the previous exec- chief executive, uh, Tony Hayward, was, as we know, ousted, not least because he chose to do the Round the Island race when he arguably had more important things to address. What plans, therefore, has the company for proper leadership in the form of chairman and chief executive in the medium term? And fourthly, Chairman, and lastly, will BP please in future avoid its AGM clashing with Rio Tinto PLC as it has done today and for the last few years, or indeed clashing with any other FTSE 100 company AGM, especially in April? Please do not bamboozle us with excuses which are likely to be well familiar and specious. 250 working days approximately in a year is more than enough for 100 FTSE 100 companies. And especially in April, outside the AGM peak, there is really no excuse for this mismanagement. If the board chairman can't manage a diary, what else can it be trusted to manage?
18: (laughs)
0: Uh, so, let me uh, go through these rather quickly. When it comes to shareholder return, we should just we should maybe go back to the uh, strategy presentation that the company did in the first of February. Uh, what we learned from the Deepwater Horizon, and when we were reviewing the strategy, and the board spent unusual amount of time. In series of board meetings during the autumn together with management to debate and evaluate and agree on the strategy and it basically is built on three points the first one we have probably the best track record of any to find oil to explore for new oil and that is where why the company wants to basically double its efforts on exploration, feed in more new reserves into the pipeline. That that would then bring us more assets to work on. Then, at the same time, we have demonstrated how well we have been paid for assets we have sold. And we share the situation with other oil majors that if you put the value of each of our wells, put them all together, they represent a bigger value than the market cap. That is similar to an investment company. But it would be interesting to feed in more new exploration because that is the phase when the biggest value creation is done. And maybe seek partnership, part ownerships, or even divest later. So we have a more dynamic portfolio. Finally, as we have learned from... Back in the 1970s, the oil majors had maybe two-thirds of the world's production of oil. Today, that's 10%. The initiative lies with the national oil companies. But the national oil companies have increasingly increasing difficulties to find oil. And that is why, for example, Reliance in India, or Osnet for that matter, or uh, CNOC in South China Sea, or Uh, Iraq's uh, South Oil Company. That's why they seek partnerships with us and our technologies where we can play a more important role than we've maybe done in the past. That's basically the strategy. and We believe that that will be value-enhancing. I will let Bob, Bob talk about Russia when it comes to my own role. That will be handled by Bill Castell under a separate resolution. And when it comes to Bob, I I can only say that the entire board is strongly behind Bob as a CEO. When it comes to avoiding the ABM and Rio Tinto, you almost indicate the answer yourself. Uh, FTSE 100 companies, 30 days in April, We can of course do AGMs anytime during the year, but we are here to review the year, so this is an appropriate time. So that means there are basically two, three every day. It is not our intention to make unnecessary clashes, but, of course, it's individual desires on on, on which of the different companies you want to go to. But we take your point. We will do our absolute very best to not clash with Rio Tinto next time.
17: Chairman, am I going to get an answer to my uh, middle two questions, and if so, when?
0: Yeah, I thought I, I only got four. I missed one.
1: Which well,
0: I asked, I asked you about Russia, and yeah, I, but asked I said you... that uh, yeah, maybe Bob will take that question.
1: Please, Bob. Okay, I, John. I'm going to mention, if I can, to add something about total shareholder return. Um, it is a fact that we had an accident, and we put aside 41 billion dollars to cover our obligations in the U.S. So, as, as by by definition, we will be a smaller, more consolidated company. Uh, we have sold 30, well, we've sold 20, we've announced the sale of over $24 billion today of divestments, and so far every one of those divestments have far exceeded the book value uh, of those assets, so therefore we are recovering uh, and unlocking shareholder value from those. Um, we, we do, 2010 was a year of a crisis, 2011 is a year of consolidation and rebuilding, we're doing that by actively managing the portfolio. We have stated that we will move off of the treadmill of always only growing production from year to year. You will see us actively manage our portfolio going forward. Uh, but we have restored the dividend. That's a long way to the beginning, There's a return of uh, total shareholder return. Um, and we laid out a strategy in February, uh, It's too long to go into now, but um, I would ask you have a look at that, which is available on our website, which lays out uh, a strategy and a plan directed at shareholder value as well as restoring trust and making sure safety and risk management is run at the heart of BP, because actually that's very good business. Um, on Russia, um, on behalf of the shareholders, BP pursued an attractive long-term exploration project in Russia with Rosneft. I think that option was good for BP's shareholders, good for Rosneft and Russia, and actually had no detrimental impact on TNKBP. TNKBP is not an offshore company. Um, Our Russian shareholders have uh, uh, obtained a temporary injunction to block the process on that. Um, They have not won won a case, they have just uh, postponed this. We have offered them participation in the Arctic we have offered cash. We have offered participation of TNKBP in international ventures and we have even jointly offered with Rosneft a fair offer for their company. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, we are not going to offer large amounts or significant shareholdings in BP because we don't think that's in the best interest of BP. We don't believe we violated the shareholders agreement in any way. Uh, we've been working parallel with Rosneft for years with TNKBP. TNKBP has had a lot of the 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 headlines. The fact is the the, the business um, we've had many bumps the board is not dysfunctional it makes a lot, it's very interesting reading in the media Um, but we'll continue to do business in Russia I don't believe it's dysfunctional it's noisy, it's been noisy since 2003, it's been an excellent business and our relationships are very good with Rosneft Um, and with TNKBP it's it's not personal it's always just business Um, with our owners so I think you characterize that unfairly um, I think I, I think that's enough.
0: thank you <laughs> then then we will
1: because bill
0: is eager to talk here so uh, bill bill will will answer the question on, on my role <clears throat>
19: thank you Chairman. Uh, as a senior independent director it's my responsibility to ensure that the in uh, the company at times is functioning appropriately that it has an appropriate chairman and that it is able to respond to both uh, challenge and opportunity. Uh, At the time of the Gulf crisis, it was clear that we had major challenges and I have to say it was a lonely job monitoring whether we were responding effectively and I'm pleased to say that with hindsight we seem to uh, run this company effectively. The job is much less lonely when you have, as we have in this company, um, a uh, a group of truly independent non-executive directors who have uh, both relevant experience, uh, diversity of uh, of, uh, geography and gender, and who have unanimously supported this company over the last year, working vigorously to support the executive in responding to the Gulf. It would not surprise you to know that I've met with the independent directors, as we've confirmed in the annual reports, to review the chairman's performance, and that review has been that we unanimously support our chairman, uh, his diligence, his wisdom, and the way that he has chaired the board through an extraordinarily difficult period. And so I can confirm to you that there is the unanimous support of the board. I'd also say to you that one of the great dangers during a crisis is that the company becomes totally obsessed with the issue of the crisis and we have a massive company as a board to watch and govern uh, and ensure that there is proper management. The chairman has I think extraordinarily well used the subcommittees of the board and including adding the gulf subcommittee which has allowed a number of us to focus and give our support to the executive while allowing the rest of the company to function. So I would, I would say that the chairman, who after all has only been a chairman of this company for just over the year, has demonstrated an ability to uh, effectively run this company with the f- full support uh, of his non-executive uh, board directors. Finally, I want to deal with Bob Dudley, and uh, it's not my job to chair the nomination committee, it is the job of the chairman. Uh, July was a very difficult time for this company, And we met on several occasions as a nominations committee to consider how the company should be led. In considering who should be the chief executive of the company, we looked both externally and internally. And as a result of those discussions, we came to the unanimous conclusion that we had an extraordinarily gifted individual in the form of Bob Dudley to lead our company. And that was the unanimous decision of the nominations committee chaired very effectively and through a rigorous process by our chairman. So uh, I've had a lot of experience in uh, global business. I have to say I have a great admiration for what our chairman has done in the last 14 months as he's learnt oil, has chaired the company and given a degree of certainty to the executive team to make sure that over, above all else, our company was safe and secure, which it is today. So I hope that answers your question,
0: sir. All right. Uh, then we now move to D.
11: Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Councillor Adidamala Aminu. Uh, I'm an ordinary shareholder. Uh, my question is about the election of the directors. Considering that BP is a global organization working in a different country, um, coming here today, I realized there's less women as a director and a BME as well. I mean, what are your policy on diversity, equality, and uh, is the appointment of women you have is just a token of BME community? And I would like to know what the directors are doing in terms of your selection criteria to actually make sure there's more women represented
0: on your board of uh, directors and BME as well. well thank you for that, that question. Uh, let me first say that when uh, when I came on board, I, I saw it as, a, as we were also going to go through some change in the board that was in the planning, that it was critical to get more, more background in, uh, in exploration and uh, extraction. And we had, of course, Cynthia Carroll on the board. We, uh, we were very happy to get Paul Anderson on board, who has spent his life in this industry. Um, we were happy to get Ian Davis on board, who, in his role as head of uh, McKinsey, and through his years at McKinsey, had consulted extensively with the with this industry, with oil and gas industry. Uh, we were also extremely glad to get Skip Bauman on board, with his background in, in nuclear safety, to help us in that side. And we are also very happy to get Brendan Nelson, because Brendan has a a, a extensive experience from the financial sector, as you may understand, which is critical for our trading business. Uh, So it was critical for us to build a a diverse set of skills, and diversity is, of course, many things. We were two ladies on the board, and and we all are committed and and uh, certain that more diversity also with women um, is important. Uh, and we go one step backwards, which was, of course, not the wrong direction. I forgot to mention Potuma of course, that, that represents both an experience in the extraction industry, but also, uh, as, a, a, as a black African, is a huge asset for us in what we think will be important for BP, that is to work in deeper collaborations with national oil companies. We are now, as we go as we go forward from here, there are further rotations that will happen, and it always happens in the board. And we will look specifically to uh, uh, to get more women on board. We would like to to. Th- there are so many aspects you have to have: extraction, financial, science, political, academia. So there are many parts. But I'm sure that we can st- take steps forward there. All right, we go to Thank A. You.
18: My name is Shirley Carey, former employee and ordinary shareholder. Mr Chairman, can BP offer a solution to halt the increase to the fuel price at the pumps and therefore assist with stabilising the cost of living?
0: But well, I know that's a question that is on many's mind, and I know that the answer is on Ian Cohn's mind, so I'll, I'll hand it over to you.
6: Well, thank you very much for the question. Um, unfortunately, we don't uniquely determine the price at the pump. We determine the price at, at our pumps, and only for a fraction of our sites, because most of them are actually determined by agents, dealers, people who actually own and run the site and we give them permission to use BP's brand and to sell our fuel. So unfortunately, we don't uniquely control it. And secondly, um, the market is very, very competitive. Uh, Many retail sites have gone out of business in the last years, and a number of companies are leaving because this market tends to be quite thin in terms of profit. So if that's the case, Why is the the price at the pump so high? Well, you actually need to look at two very important determinants. The first is the crude oil price, which I'm afraid is high and is set by the international market, and the uncertainties associated with the Middle East and a number of other issues have contributed to that. The unique thing about the UK petrol price is that it's actually among the cheapest pre-tax gasoline supplies in in Europe, and it's almost the most expensive post-tax gasoline. 60% of the pump price is made up of duty and VAT. So unfortunately, the government has to make a very difficult decision as to where it gets duty and taxes from society And a large part of this is the government's decision. And finally, of the 140 pence per litre that we typically charge, or more, uh, our typical margin is somewhat less than 5p. So I'm afraid that many of the issues that materially contribute to the issue you raise are out of the control
0: of BP. All right. Uh, Let's move to station B. Good afternoon,
20: uh, and thank you very much. My name is Charlie Kronick, and I'm a shareholder. I have a question about oil demand scenarios, or energy demand scenarios, which are mentioned in the annual report. But I, before I ask that question, I wanted to extend an invitation uh, on behalf of Byron and Collade, Tracy Coons, and the other Gulf fishermen, to both the chairman and to Bob Dudley to come to have a gumbo with them in New Orleans uh, the next time they're in North America because they wanted me to convey to you they do things differently there and they're very warm and welcoming anyone into their community and they were very sorry not to be able to pass that invitation on personally. So I offered to do it for them. Um, The question I wanted to ask was specifically around uh, future oil demand scenarios. Uh, On page 18 of the annual report, Um, you mentioned that up to 80% of of future energy demand will be coming from fossil fuels by 2030. But also the um, IEA, whose scenario I assume the International Energy Agency referred to there, said if measures were put in place to respond to climate change, oil demand and energy demand as a result would be significantly and could be significantly lower and therefore would have significant commercial uh, implications for the sale of the products of of this company, and therefore on the prospects for uh, value and the shareholders, and I just wondered if uh, either the chair or the chief executive could explain why you emphasise that 80% figure as opposed to the significantly lower options. Thank you very much.
0: <clears throat> no, le- let me say that uh, we are not we are not proposing anything. We have to, as a company. Um, we have, to, we have to have our planning scenarios to, to get something to hold on to. And there is, we have what we call, and we repeatedly talk about it, I made a speech uh, the, other, the other day about this, we have what we call a basic scenario which is based on the current trends and amounts, it is on policy decisions that are taken, and policy decisions that we can see could be taken. Uh, That is what leads us to the 40% increase in in energy, and 80% being fossil fuel. Uh, We're also presenting what we call the policy case, which is the most toughest policies that have at all been debated. If we put all those into a scenario, what would it then look like? And then we would see that CO2 emissions would uh, peak probably, a couple of years after 2020, maybe 10 years earlier than, than we have in our base scenario. Um, then you have IEA, which is going the other way around and saying that if we would get to 50% reduction of CO2 by 2050, you know all this, I'm sure, but <laughs> I just want to tell the others, what would then need to happen without understanding how it would happen? And then you would come to an even tougher case. But either way, you would find that fossil fuel will remain important. And I think it's also important to remember that fossil fuel is not something we can't live with. It's all about the balance. And the most important thing we can do in the short term is actually to work on energy efficiency because only 12% of the energy from the ground ends up as turning a wheel or heating a house or or so on. So we can do so much on energy efficiency. Um, We we also, you can see that nothing is more important than actually to, uh, to change within, between fossil fuels. If we can go from less coal to more gas, that would also mean more to the emissions than almost anything else. We're all into this discussion, and one of the most, which Bob touched on, to advocate for a price on carbon, we think that's extremely important because that will help us understand the price of what we're actually using of, of the world's resources. So, so there are many aspects of this, and we are clearly aware of them all, but somehow on behalf of the shareholders, we must also plan for what we believe is most likely to happen, not necessarily what we would like to see happen.
20: So, uh, just just to be clear, you think that the, the current policy scenario, the one that doesn't reflect uh, a significant effort to reduce carbon emissions, is the most likely
0: outcome? We, we, in our what we have a base scenario, includes all policies taken, all possible policies that we believe could be taken. We're not trying to drive our own case here. We just look at what is the most positive scenario. If all of those... So, uh, Sorry, the base case includes all policy taken and policy decisions that we believe could be taken. That is our base case. It's not straightforward and uh, continuances. is. That's not our base case. Very good, let's go to C.
21: Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman. My name is Alan Diamond. I'm representing the interests of my personal holding, that of my wife and our charity trust. Mr. Farmer rightly referred to the poor performance of our share price. And today's Financial Times gives the board another worry, which it says, wrangle over TNK BP buyout plan, BP Russia talks, hit deadlock. If the deal were to fall through, there would be further pressure on our share price. And if the board would be too generous, it would also have a similar effect would you not agree sir to have caused president obama apoplexy over the gulf spill a few months later to have so upset our russian joint venture partners takes a very special expertise (laughs) in these in these circumstances should not non-executive directors be more willing to attend board meetings in the case of miss carroll a non-executive director, she apparently only attended 32 times as opposed to 42 board meetings. Are shareholders getting good value for the 90,000-plus a year that she receives in remuneration? Or are her activities as chief executive of Anglo-American preventing her appearances? Perhaps through the chair she would like to respond.
0: Right. Um, let me just say that we would normally in a year have maybe eight board meetings and there will be five or six committee meetings and one may sit on one committee or, or maybe more. Last year we had 25 board meetings and we had probably the double of that in committee meetings when you had all the various committee meetings. We, we had meetings with during the crisis, several times a week, several times more than one in a day. And we had to call them with very short notice. And there was a tremendous adherence to, to come to the meetings. It, 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 and, uh, and Cynthia was probably the one that had the biggest struggle. And still, I think, the, the, the figures you're mentioning, I think, are. We should be pretty proud that you, you did that because Cynthia has such a, a, a demanding job. Maybe you want to tell us your story.
22: Well, I thank you for your um, observation. I can assure you that uh, my commitment first is to Anglo-American and second to BP. Uh, and I do yep. have a, a most demanding uh, schedule. Uh, and I, as Carl Henrik has pointed out, I have attended the majority and, uh, and I will continue to do so. Thank you very much for your observation, your input.
0: So, we have 12 questions to go, so we need to speed up, shorter, I, shorter questions, shorter answers. Yes?
21: Could I just respond, please? Yes. Anglo-American's offices are about a few minutes around the corner from yours, and if <laughs> Cynthia has rightly said that she puts her devotions to Anglia before BP, should she perhaps consider her position on the BP board?
0: Well, that—that that is, uh, I think we should just understand Cynthia's travel schedules. If you try to catch her at almost any time and it's not a board meeting that we have on a, on a scheduled day, she will be in, in China or South Africa or in Chile or somewhere. Please, D.
23: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Said Gorbanajat and I'm an ordinary shareholder. Uh, My question is concerned about the uh, emerging market for electric cars. Right, As we know, electric cars today are not the same like electric cars 12 or 13 years ago. Well, we had these electric cars. You would charge them, they would only run for 30 miles, and they would run out of steam. Yeah, but today we get electric cars produced. It's not just one company. It's quite a few companies. They produce electric cars which can run up to 160, 170 miles on one single charge. Right, so my concern is, it's not just like one company, it's most of the companies, at least there's 25 companies. There's five companies which are already producing right now on a massive scale. There's companies which are gonna produce within this fiscal year. There's companies which are gonna produce within the next fiscal year on a massive scale. And we're talking about Warren Buffett, Elon Musk involved in that. Uh, companies like Tesla Motors, BYD Auto, there's Nissan, Mitsubishi, they're all investing large amount of money into the market uh, in order to get the electric cars running. There's lithium ion batteries which are very efficient, plus they want to also implement some of the nano technologies in order to make it even more efficient. Of course we know it's not mature yet at this point, it's not very uh, cost effective, but I mean wait a few years and it's going to be uh, even cheaper and more effective.
0: Yeah, your question right, is?
23: So are you anticipating, and the second question is, is it going to have a big impact on the shape prices? That's the question.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, thank, thank you, Side. Um We watch this, of course, very carefully. I think it comes back to the fundamental view of the demand growth for energy, which will be, we think, in our most likely case, 40% more than today by 2030. 93% of that will come from the emerging markets. All forms of energy will grow, all of them, including coal, which is the highest greenhouse gas emission type of fuel. Renewables will grow. The There are great technology hurdles yet to see in the, in the uh, economic development of electric cars. The weight of the battery versus the amount of consumption used of fuel is yet to be on a large scale. It will take some time. We think this will take some time. Secondly, electric cars, while they are very good, uh, the real goal of electric cars would be to create less greenhouse gases. Many of this now, the concepts involve the burning of coal in a coal-fired power plant to make movement in the cities. Less polluting, but you're really just moving the pollution around. We think there's a future in all forms of 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 energy: coal, gas, oil, renewables, all, and nuclear, maybe, uh, depending what's happening. And that's another pressure on the on the need for all kinds of fuels, including fossil fuels, as a result of what will happen after um, after the uh, disaster in Japan. So yes, we do watch it. Do we think it's going to fundamentally change our Demand for our products? Uh, no. Not in, not in the next two decades. All right.
23: Well, uh, here's the point is uh, we've got Brazil, India, and China very, very interested in the development of electric cars because we know they're dependent on foreign oil. Uh, that was the reason for my concern. Mm. The biggest. and It accounts for over 2.5 billion people. But it is true that
0: that we're not going to see all those people get uh, petrol cars. It will be a big growth Mm. for electric cars. The only thing we would hope is that that electricity is produced in a good way. And we'll move to station number one. A.
18: Hello. uh, My name is Claire Simons. I'm an ordinary shareholder Perhaps I'm even related to the other Mr. Simons, who was a, a more distinguished shareholder, perhaps than myself. Um, I do not apologize to bringing us back to the topic of the oil tar sands extraction project, uh, because this is a subject, uh, an industry that's notorious for its local and global pollution. And I remain concerned that in a few years' time, I will be at this meeting hearing about the devastating loss to yet another ecosystem and a First Nations' way of life. It seems to me, from hearing what I've heard today, that there seems to be a gross mismatch between your reassurances about the SAGD process and what I hear and read about from those living with the effects of the extractive mining process. Because personally, I think it's unacceptable to profit at the expense of others and the expense of the environment. So my question to you is, are you listening? and how are you responding to what they are saying about their concerns about the SAGD process?
0: And I, I think we, we have already been giving a lot of answers on the matter, so I think we need to, to somehow move on. But, but it is, we are obviously, we do not believe that we do the harm that, that uh, some are, are, are claiming. But of course, this is incredibly important, and we are, part of our Our work is to interact with all local communities uh, so that, that we we can understand all matters and all concerns. And of course, at the end of the day, it is up to the governments in the respective countries to also decide and make sure that they believe fundamentally that this is a, 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 a good way of creating energy. We'll go to B.
24: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, members of the board of BP. My name is Lydia Will. I'm shareholder and I'm one of the trustee of the German foundation ETECOM. Every year, we give the Blue Planet Award to people who save our planet and the Black Planet Award to people who destroy our planet. Last year, Our foundation gave the Black Planet Award to Carl Henrik Swanberg and Bob Dudley to BP. The reason for bringing this prize to BP is a a tragic accident into the Gulf of Mexico. I think I don't want to talk about it anymore. You destroy our Earth for our profits. My colleagues, Diane Wilson, Axel Köhler-Schnurrer, and some of the fishes of the Gulf of Mexico had to stay out of this conference. They, sorry, they are not allowed to come in to give the original prize to you. Now we have something to show you that you can guess how the real prize looks like And we want to tell you that Diane Wilson gets arrested by the police for the whole time of this meeting. We are shocked that they are not allowed to prevent their opinion in this democratic country, Great Britain. Now I have two questions to Carl Henrik Swanberg. Would you please let them in? It's your meeting and let them give you the prize. And if you are not able uh, and give you the prize, you earn this prize for the accident in the Gulf of Mexico and not create another public relation on goal. If you are not able to let them in, we would please you to come out after the meeting to get this nice Black Planet Award. Thanks.
0: Well, let me just come back to, We, f- first of all, we have in our articles of association, we have the right to uh, stop people from a meeting if we think they might disrupt it. And, and it is, as you said, Diane Wilson was also arrested in a similar meeting in the United States not long ago, and it was her and her group that we didn't let in. So that didn't seem maybe as, as the best forward way in a democratic world. But anyway, that's that's where we are, and um, and I can only, I, I understand your concern. Um, I will not, uh, I, I do not have, not in the position now to let them in. But shall we continue with station C here?
25: Hello, uh, my name's Suzanne Daliwal, um, and I'm a BP shareholder. Um, a very concerned shareholder. Um, I understand that one of the key lessons that we've learned from the tragic events in the Gulf is the need for BP to have more oversight of what our contractors and partners are doing. So This is a question about contractor responsibility. Um, I'm a very active shareholder. I'm concerned about my future and this, my investment in this company. So I actually travelled to Alberta to visit the tar sands, Um, And the people in this room may be surprised to learn that nowhere will you see a BP sign. Everything is branded with Husky Energy, um, who's our partner in this project. Husky is responsible for extracting the oil, for ensuring safety, for managing the environment, and for consulting with local communities. Husky not BP, and yet it's us. It's BP who will suffer the reputational risk and financial loss when issues arise. In the wake of Deepwater and in light of the acknowledged breakdown in BP's oversight of contractors' activities, can you actually reassure us that BP staff will directly consult with communities to address their concerns and will not leave that responsibility to to Husky?
0: Well, let uh, let me... um... Uh, let, let, me, let us leave the oil sense as such, but your question is general, I understand that. Yes, yeah, it's
25: a larger question about yes. community consultation and contract responsibility.
0: Absolutely. So I
1: will give that to Bob to answer how we have developed
25: yes. our
0: Su- thinking.
1: Suzanne, you're right. Uh, the oil and gas industry and the, and the energy industry, more so than almost any other industry, has joint ventures and partnerships around the world. That is, that is the way that you operate, and you are right. We are... An investor and do not operate the project with Husky. Uh, we expect Husky to uh, to operate. The, we would not have invested with Husky, who were the original developers, unless we believe that they had, in fact, gone through a consultation process uh, and were uh, developed the project within the regulations of the province, with the, the local peoples and the federal government in Canada. Um, they are very, very active of that. We are closely working with Husky. Um, I will take back your suggestion with our team to see if we should, if it's appropriate for us to have direct interactions. It is not because of apathy, let me tell you that. Uh, we have a big team of people in Canada that have oversight and work with that joint venture. I'll take your suggestion back. Okay. All right, All right. <laughs> let's move to D.
20: <coughs> Good afternoon. My name is Jeff Gould. I am a shareholder. In view of the problems that continue in Rosneft and TNKBP and all the problems that went on last year in the Gulf, I wonder whether the, the board have considered that our PR ability is sadly lacking and if they intend to do anything about it.
0: Well, I can, certainly, uh, I can certainly agree that it was incredibly difficult in the crisis of the Gulf, which was maybe the biggest crisis that have happened in this world after we, we came into a 24 by 7 internet driven media world. If you go back to nine eleven, for example, 2001, internet was not a tool that was used in that way. That made it extremely difficult. There were some 10,000 articles. Probably written about the company every day at the peak of the crisis, we we were not we were not equipped for a crisis of that of that magnitude. I think we can conclude that, and we have drawn we have drawn several conclusions
1: from it. Maybe maybe you want to say something, Bob? There. Well, I think, Jeff, you raise a, a fundamental point of the change that's happened, and all boards are... Not, it's not just about PR, it's about risk management, because there is a 24-7 media cycle. There's social media uh, realities and perceptions can become can become blurred, and, and we, as a company, now need to look at everything from not only traditional print media uh uh, but the social media to make sure we communicate much more openly and frequently than we have in the past. And I can tell you what you put your finger on is something that um, uh, every chief executive I meet is talking about and concerned about as well as the board. So um, it's, it's more than just PR. It is, um, it is new capabilities that companies and governments uh, need to develop to be able to live in this new world. All right, now we're on B.
25: Good afternoon, my name is Robert Holton, and I'm here by proxy. I have a hypothetical question for you, but I'd really appreciate your engagement with it, albeit imaginatively. But we have talked about Japan, the Gulf of Mexico, and Canada, and all around us we're seeing large-scale environmental destruction. That has a name. It is ecocide. Ecocide. In May and June of 2012, the Earth Summit will take place 20 years after the Earth Summit in Rio, and the UN will vote on whether ecocide should become the fifth crime against peace, punishable by the International Criminal Court. So I would like to know, if this were to happen, how this would affect the decisions made by the board of BP in terms of saying that large-scale environmental destruction would be rendered illegal, forcing you to reconsider how you extract energy from, from our natural environment.
0: Well, it, it's a hypothetical question, but any company in, in any industry in the world will always have to uh, consider all, all regulations and framework which in it operates. So changes in that will, of course, have, have some impact. We can't, we can't violate, uh, violate the regulation. But this is, as you say, a, a hypothetical question. All right, next one, we have C.
17: Hello, um, my name is Gareth Wood. Um, I'm a shareholder, and I work as a contractor. Over the last, sorry, did you can? Over the last eight years, I've tried to speak to the board in some way or form. I was wondering if I could have a private meeting with you, Carl and Bob, if that was possible. That's the question.
0: Well, uh, I'm. We are well aware of your matter, and and, uh, we have have staff here available. You you have described your matter well, and and we have described our position. And um, uh, after the meeting, we will make sure that that there are relevant people that will listen to your your, your thoughts.
26: Okay, thank you you very
0: much.
17: Good afternoon. Neil Garvin, shareholder. Mr Chairman, following the gulf disaster, a continuing and troubling memory for me has been of Tony Hayward. A man who was hounded, beleaguered, a man who appeared to be very much on his own. Mr Chairman, where were the other members of the board at this time, and in particular, where were you?
0: Well, it was first of all, let us, let us conclude that that Tony did a, a, an appreciated job during his all years of service and led the response during the crisis. When we came to the conclusion uh, the board and Tony, we were all came to the same conclusion that we needed fresh leadership to uh, to work with restoring the company's position, leadership, and and trust around the world. During the crisis, it is extremely difficult to have somebody, somebody is representing the company. And that is what Tony Haywood did. And Tony himself was very clear that he wanted to make sure in America that he was seen as number one. He, in America, there is no such thing really as a non-executive chairman. The chairman is a higher leader than the CEO. So there was a concern all from, from, from Tony's side that if I would have a more visible role, his role would be diminished some. Uh, when we failed in the top kill, the 29th of May was really when this turned from an operational crisis, that which we saw as a crisis where it was all about how we could close the well early. That is when it turned into a financial crisis and it turned into a political crisis. And that is when I also stepped out and, and had the meeting with, with Obama, of course, but so I had, and, and don't misread communication or being visible for those media that want one more face to, to uh, interview. I was out there in Financial Times. I was out there in other papers stating the board's position and stating our support from Tony. But I spent a lot of time with, with the government in UK, with the government in US, with all ambassadors to all countries that UK have across the world, with editors, with, with uh, 30 largest shareholders several times, and we had our, our, our board meetings almost uh, daily at times. So this was an incredibly intense period. Um, I think that one of the things that we maybe learned from this is that Tony took on too much to be the spokesperson. I don't think that would have been helped by I'm also stepping out and standing beside him. We should have relied more on spokesperson that he could back up. And, and, and that was maybe something we, we all should take some more more, um, uh, more responsibility for. Uh, but I, th- it is important to say that the fact that he resigned was not at all an, an effect of that he was an a scapegoat or a 10th must roll. It was all a matter of that we needed efficient, effective leadership going forward. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank B. You.
22: Thank you. I will be brief. My name is Ray Dawkin. I became a shareholder in BP when Amoco was taken over. I own shares in Chevron, Exxon, Hess and Marathon as well. So I wish to emphasize that I'm not here to cast stones. I'm also here quite by accident, literally between flights. The Gulf of Mexico disaster has been very costly, both in terms of human life, the environment, costly to the reputation and finances of BP itself, and also costly to the shareholders, both in terms of depressed share prices and in terms of foregone dividends. My question to you is, And I came upon this question when I opened my proxy materials and saw that the entire board was up for re-election and saw that some members of those boards sit on the environment and on the safety committees. My question to you is, is when does a catastrophe or however you want to, to call it, when does it rise to the point where one might expect some resignations or one might expect some executives to undergo some penalty other than perhaps a slightly diminished uh, bonus for that particular year. In other words, my question essentially is, where is the personal accountability in terms of what happened within a large corporation? I mean, you people, quite honestly, have cost me money. Who's paying me? Who's Who's making it up to me? That's my question, thank you.
0: And your concern is obviously—it's um, a legitimate concern that you have—and um, this is where you know well the, the, the changes that we've had in the executive team. We have basically half a new board, um, and if you look at the um, if you look at the remuneration, no uh, no uh, bonuses are paid. For 2010, for those that could influence the, uh, the the Gulf of Mexico accident of the executive team. So there are, of course, a matter of uh, a number of steps that have been taken. And then it's it's important, of course, that we learn from this and we take the right actions. And at the end of the day, shareholders decide on who stays in the board. And and there are all kinds of investigations also that that are out there seeking uh, responsibility for various matters. But that that is where we are. But I understand your concern. Uh, Anything else? So, my friends, we are are through. So I will now move on to, uh, so let's now look at the votes received from shareholders that are not here today and show them on the slide behind me to see where we are on the the annual report and accounts. And we have a 95.5% for. Let me then move to the next one. And this is number two, the approval of directors' remuneration report ending in December 2010. Any questions on the remuneration report? If not, let's look at the slide behind me to show the votes received. 89%, 88.9%, four. So, let me now go to um, uh, the election and re-election of the directors. Douglas Flint and Deanne Julius, as I said, uh, will stand down. All other directors offer themselves for annual re-elections, with Frank Baumann, Brenda Nelson, and Patuban Aleko offering themselves for election. So resolution three to 14 before us concern all directors except me. I will chair the discussion of these resolutions, but in order to avoid any conflict of interest, Bill Castell will chair the discussion on resolution 15 as it concerns my own re-election. In the notice of the meeting, there are detailed biographies of each of the directors. Contribution made by individual directors have also been considered and are described in the notice. All of the non-executive directors who are subject of these resolutions are considered by the board to be independent. The board performance report in our annual report sets out the detail in the work of the board and the committees during last year. I have commented on this in my earlier remarks. And I would like to thank all my colleagues for their commitment during last year. So, with the directors being described in a notice before you, I'm happy to take questions on the reappointment of any of the individuals other than myself. Are there any questions? All right, thanks for that. Um, And now the slides shown behind me give votes to Resolution 3 to 15 from the shareholders that are not here today. So I will now ask Bill Castell to share the meeting for the discussion on Resolution 15 as it relates to me.
19: Uh, as the Senior Independent Director, I'm pleased to put the next resolution to the meeting, namely the re-election of Carl henriks fanburg as Director. Are there any questions on the resolution? Uh, uh, I will uh, refer you to the results of the poll, which is on the screen behind. Thank you.
12: Uh,
0: Carl Henrik, I return to you the chairmanship of the meeting. Well, thank you. And let me first say um, thanks for your support. I, I would like to start by thanking also Bill Castell here for the words that you said previously on behalf of the board. I know that this has been a difficult year. I know we are all disappointed, and I know we we all want things to turn to the better. I can only assure you, thank you for your support, and assure you that I will do, and the entire board will do everything we can to bring this company to a prosperous future. So, then we are at Resolution 16. The reappointment of Ernst & Young as auditors of the company until the conclusion of the next meeting. Any comments on that? So we have a comment here from Station B.
12: Thank you,
11: Chairman.
0: <laughs> Chairman, this Ernest Young, how long they have been
11: in the job with this BP, you see? And how long the present partner has been auditing the accounts? Right. And what I've seen on page 176, you see, the tax services, which is non-auditing, had gone 100% increase you have paid them. Any justification for 100% increase in that? You know very well the Ernest Young, who did the Lehman Brothers, ruined that company, how long they will continue to do work with BP.
0: Can you tell me, please? Thank you. We will hand that to, to Douglas.
16: Ernst & Young have given service to the company for a very long time, a considerable time, and, and uh, the audit committee regularly reviews whether that continues to be appropriate. Each time it is considered, the conclusion has been that the the uh, the benefit from experience, the benefit from longevity in the relationship, and an understanding of the company is really important. The partners rotate every five years now on maximum. and I think the current partner has been there for three years, um, and, uh, and, and therefore in two years' time we, we, will, we will have another change. Uh, I have to say from my own perspective, I think the service this company gets from Ernst & Young is outstanding, and I am uh, very, very supportive as a shareholder of their re-election.
11: Why not to uh, um, invite quotation from Pricewaterhouse, KPMG and Deloitte, they are there as well.
16: Because in my judgment, and, and, and the judgments of the audit committee, it's not a question of price. And in fact, it's a, I, I believe that if we got the same level of commitment, the price would be virtually the same. And I think the benefit that we get from the longevity of, of experience and the quality of service that we can see means that you don't change something that works well.
11: No, but you yourself said that they have been there for a very long time, so why not to get the fresh Uh, ideas from various other uh,
0: accounting bodies rather than continue to employ Ernest Young. Let us us bring that matter to Brendan's table here. He is now taking over as a fresh head of audit committee, and and we will consider these as other matters. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. Station A. Thank
7: you, sir. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Martin Simons again. I'm a Chartered Accountant, and I'd like to pay tribute to the accountancy staff of BP. It must have been a huge job this year to pair those accounts, and I sense they are very cautiously prepared. And having heard what you said about some of our contractors, I hope that the figures that have been presented will turn out to be on the pessimistic side and that there will be something to come in future. But talking about the audit fee, I mean, in some ways it's gratifying that the audit fee in view of the problems that the company faced last year are virtually unchanged from, from 209 on the other hand, if you look at the last three years of Shell and of BP, they come out almost the same. Uh, our audit fees, uh, currency fees, if I got my arithmetic correctly, over the last three years, were 176 million million, one one hell of a lot of money, while for Shell they were $173 million. Now, shelves are the bigger than we are, and I do wonder whether the hourly rates, which are so astronomically high to when I was uh, uh, an article clerk, or indeed a a chartered accountant, aren't really just over the top. Like, I've heard partners saying, it's money for a rope. I do really feel that bankers and accountants and lawyers, God only knows what the lawyers charge us, I wish there was a note to that effect, um, are over the top. And I beg you to think very carefully uh, that you bring appropriate pressure to see that these fees are kept in bounds. Thank you very much.
0: Well, we thank you for uh, your tribute to the... To the account department, I can tell you they were busy, but so were also many others in the last year. Uh, then I think we will move to B. Thank you, Chairman. Alan McDougall from Perk, the Corporate Governance
15: services Again, uh, the average length of an audit contract with a FTSE 100 company in the UK is 48 years. Now, um, I noticed that Grant Shapps, The local government and housing minister recently suggested in local government chronicle that the new audit conditions in the public sector would probably mean that local authorities should not use an auditor for further than five years in any one contract. Leaving aside the merits of abolishing the audit commission, might it be appropriate for the company's audit committee to consider that as a best practice guideline for itself And secondly, in the light of the House of Lords' report on the audit profession, does the audit committee consider that there is a massive risk in only effectively four global audit firms from which to choose? And therefore, to minimise that risk, wouldn't it seem prudent to ensure that non-audit work be conducted by a separate firm in order to reduce the pressure on the audit firm conducting both sides of the process from the company in the event that there is an issue that the auditor feels very strongly about that needs to be disclosed. Really, it's up to the audit committee to look at these issues, and it might be helpful for next year for the committee to produce a more detailed report about considering that specific issue, given the fact that it's clearly
0: a risk. I thank you for those, those uh, thoughts, uh, that will be further further digestion by Brendan here. Alright, uh, then I believe we can move on and we have resolution 16, 99.6%. We will now turn to resolution 17, seeking approval for the repurchase of the company's share, up to a limit described in the notice. Any question on this one? There is one from station C.
17: Chairman Scheldt, this may be a precautionary enabling resolution seen as routine, but please may we have a board assurance that there are no current plans to buy back shares because although the theoretical justification for share repurchase that if some shares are taken out of issue, the presumed rigidity of the price-earnings ratio will cause share price increase uh, is understood. Uh, There is a widespread perception among particularly active private shareholders that in practice it does not lastingly happen. And I raise this in the situation of arguably fire sale disposals of BP assets, you may disagree with my designation, but it is slightly unusual, and one can imagine a rush of blood to the head and a expenditure on share repurchase, which is widely, as I say, perceived not to benefit total sharehold return in the long run, despite the fanciful theoretical notion. So, please, may we have an assurance that you are not visualizing this. Thank you.
0: Well, we can't. We, we should never, I guess, give assurances of, of that nature, but I can only confirm that uh, share buybacks has not been in the, on the agenda of the board, at least not since I started. So. Um, at least that I can, I can tell you. All right, the slide behind me on 17 shows 99.37%. We will now turn to resolution 18 and 19. The full text of each of these resolutions are contained in the notice of the meeting. The resolutions give the directors authority to allot shares in two specific circumstances and subject to limits which meet the guidelines of UK institutional investors. Our proposed shares of Rosneft has led to some discussions with investors over the use of this authority. We recognize the interest of all of our shareholders in the ownership of the company and will, in case of Rosneft, consult appropriately. Any other questions on this one? Then I think we should look under how that how that voting looks. So we are now at ninety. We will now turn to resolution 20. This resolution seeks approval for the company calling general meeting other than this meeting, other than the annual general meeting, on 14 days' notice. This is intended to enable the company to continue to enjoy the shorter period for calling such general meetings as permitted in the Companies Act, which has implemented the EU Shareholder Rights Directive. Any questions on this resolution? All right, and we look at the votes 90.63. The slide behind me, that was that one. We will now turn to our resolution number 21. This resolution seeks authority to allow the company or BP International Limited to fund political donations or incur political expenditure up up to the limit amount stated in the resolution. The authority is being sought for the full four-year period allowed by legislation. We do not make political donations in the ordinary sense, and we have no intention of using the authority for that purpose. However, the legislation that covers this is very wide and may include organizations which we do not believe to be political. It may be in the shareholders' interest for us to support these organizations, such as those which represent business or are concerned with policy or law reform. For this reason, we seek this authority. Any questions on this one? All right, we look at the votes. 94.83. So, resolutions number 22 and 23 proposed the renewal of two BP employee share plans. And I now want to produce a copy of these plans to the meeting. They are there. Um, These plans are an opportunity for employees to own a share in the company. BP considers that to ensure their interest, uh, considers that this ensures their interests to be aligned with those of our shareholders. Holding shares in BP gives employees a strong interest in helping the company to achieve its goals and enjoy long-term success. The plans were first approved in 2001, and further renewal is being sought today. The purpose behind this renewal and the details of the plans are set out in the pages 10 and 11 in the notice of the meeting. Are there any questions of these two plans? All right. Let me look at the votes. 90 609. Once again, the votes cast by those not here are shown behind me now. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And that in fact concludes our meeting today. I would like to thank you for your patience for those of you that have stayed through the meeting. Thanks a lot. Oh, sorry, we are not really through yet. Hold it. If you stay this long, you can stay another 30 seconds. I explained earlier that our company's articles of association provide that that we vote by poll on each resolution. I will now ask the company's secretary to explain the voting process to you. This is important.
26: Ladies and gentlemen, you will have received... Uh, your voting card at registration. Only members, their proxies, or corporate representatives and ADS holders are entitled to vote. Please cast your votes by now completing the following parts of your polling car- voting cards. Mark either the box for or against each resolution. Please note a vote withheld is not a vote under English law and will not be counted in the calculation of the proportion of votes for and against a resolution. Please fill in your name, please sign the card, and indicate whether you are a shareholder, proxy, or corporate representative. Your card will be collected by Equinity, our registrar, on your way out of the auditorium. If you need help with completing your card, the registrar's staff will be happy to help you. The poll will close in an hour from now. We have appointed Equinity to tabulate the polls and have asked PricewaterhouseCoopers to act as scrutineer. As soon as we have the final count, we will announce the results on the BP website. Back to you, Chairman
0: thank you david and finally may i just thank you for your attendance your patience while waiting to ask questions at today's annual general meeting refreshments will now be served as usual Uh, your lunch voucher is at the bottom of your poll card if there is not enough room outside to sit down and have lunch please come back into the hall bob and i together with the entire board here uh we will be walking around after the meeting, and we'll be very happy to meet and talk to you further. Thanks again for your interest and for support of our company. Have a safe journey home.